Welcome to another episode of The Long Road to Ruin. And for the last time, actually, well, in the immediate future, your special interim guest host, managing supervisor of all things Long Road to Ruin, I am Robert Winfrey, and thank you all so very much for joining us here. Uh, Been quite a ride. I've enjoyed the heck out of it. Uh, My latest stint, I, I guest host this from time to time. This was the longest stretch I've ever done. But I enjoyed it. Uh, I'd like to thank everyone out there listening for tolerating me in lieu of Mark Radulich. I'd like to thank Sean for the same thing, pretty much, tolerating me instead of Mark. Uh, but it's been a ride, and I will more than likely be back at some point in the future. If not hosting, then at least just contributing, because I love the show. I really do. I'm not just paying lip service, because I don't get paid enough to pay lip service. All right. Tonight, everybody, we are tackling the last half so to speak, of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, the iconic horror franchise of the 80s that deteriorated rather quickly. If you missed our last show, I'd encourage you to go find it on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, so on and so forth. And we talked about all the good episodes, the good additions into this particular series, namely the first Nightmare on Elm Street, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, Wes Craven's new Nightmare, and just for the heck of it, Freddy vs. Jason. So yay us. This week, however, we got the other side of the spectrum. We are tackling all the ones that suck. So strap in, folks, because this could be a long one, and hopefully one filled with lots of fun. All right, my co-host for this show, the man from the Fortress of Seanitude himself, he's always ready and willing and able to go on a rant if he feels it necessary. Sean Comer is here with us, folks. How you doing, Sean? Hey there, hi there, ho there, everybody. I'm Sean, you're not, and I'm uniquely exhausted this week. <laughs> uh, and i got to admit, it's also one of the rare occasions when I genuinely, we're covering at least one movie this week that I kind of wish we had stuck on the other edition. 
Ooh, that'll be fun. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but otherwise, yeah, this is where things start to get painful. Uh, this is where... God, and we when we when we get done talking about about the remake, I have to revisit my rant that I made on an episode of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy about everything that went wrong with something that had so much potential to go right, something that I, against my better judgment, was so excited about, and something that really just kind of embodies everything this show is about, and that is looking at looking at the disappointment of some of some movies at how we go into the theater when the lights go down or in my case as it were when I saw this when I saw this movie when I reclined my car seat back and reached over to the DiGiorno pizza that I heated up before drive before heading out uh, we just we, we we get our hopes up so high that we're about to see something special and then in just an instant or two or in this case, about 90 minutes of, dear God, make it stop. The hopes are just dashed. They're gone. They're, they're not coming back, and we vow that we're never going to love and get our heart broken again, and eventually, well, the lo, and behold, the, lo and behold, <laughs> we see the trailer for Leprechaun Origins, and we feel it starting to happen again. It's a mistake to feel that way, Sean. You're better off not loving at all. All right. And once again, coming back, our special guest for the evening, the third voice here tonight, though we're not going to call him Tony Schiavone, uh, Benjamin J. Colon, our wonderful title card artist, is back with us. Uh, how you doing tonight, Ben? Good evening, gentlemen. Um, doing good. Thank you for not calling me Tony Schiavone. Uh, and um, I have a feeling at least in some of these... Oh, God. <laughs> I have a feeling tonight I may be doing a little bit more defending than usual. I came here tonight for maybe a little fist fight or two. Hey, we welcome dissert. We welcome dissenting opinions. No one. If we all agreed all the time, the world would be a boring place, and this show would be exponentially less interesting. Don't don't get me wrong. There's. We're, we're, there'll, there'll be rants from more than one person on more than one of these movies tonight. Trust me. But <laughs> All right. Well, let's jump right into this one, everybody. <sighs> Since we're doing the bad ones in chronological order, much as we did the good ones. We're going to start off with uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge. <laughs> He's laughing already. Oh, <laughs> good I, I reason. apologize I apologize to this movie because this is the one we should have done two weeks ago. Oh, really? You wanted to put this in the good category, essentially? I want to put it in the good category because I realized over the course of a conversation that I was having with um, Allison about a week and a half ago that I just can't hate this movie. I, I can't. It's it's too stupid for me to hate it. I just I, I can't muster the nerve to be angry about it. It's I'll take it. I I mean it's 
it's a misguided it's a misguided effort, but God love it, it was trying. All right. Well, for those of you who don't know a bit of the history, following the success of A Nightmare on Elm Street, the Wes Craven classic that we talked about last week, given that it was profitable and a success and all the things that a studio looks at and go, profitability hostage, we must ride this. We got, uh, sequels were inevitable, and before we got three, which was, as you guys mentioned last week, er, not last week, last episode, that, that's kind of the sequel we all want and deserve following the first one. There's a bump in the road, a uh, bend, if you will. It's not exactly straight. And we get Freddy's revenge. Now, if you've never seen this movie, everybody, this is the gayest movie I've seen. (laughs) I don't mean that as an insult. Hold on, everybody out there that's about to push the hate button or call Wanda Sykes or whoever's doing their, don't use that. I don't mean that as in... I can't think of another word for stupid, so I'm saying gay. I mean, this movie is more or less overtly homosexual. So don't get out your hate blocks for that one. There's so much in this movie that is gay. That is about male-to-male attraction. Okay? And... The writer intended it as subtext, and the director was apparently too stupid to understand that subtext is no not necessarily that <laughs> you don't say it. <laughs> and we get some of the again just bizarrely gay stuff, like the uh, overbearing physical education teacher, coach, if you will, from the local high school finding our protagonist in a gay bar, taking him to the showers and making him stand under them, only to then be stripped by Freddy Krueger, actually this child, this kid, the protagonist, acting out on Freddy's behalf, have his ass whipped with a wet towel five or six unnecessary times and then skinned. This happened, okay? I'm not making this up. <sighs> And, well, let, let me start that out by saying, I don't want to go through, again, the, the plot of this movie is, this family moves into the same house from the first film, and Jesse, I believe our protagonist, starts seeing Freddy, Freddy wants him to kill for him, there's a, I feel like everyone involved with the, in this movie is actually Tobias Funke from Arrested Development. <laughs> The guy who wrote a novel or a self-help book called The Man Inside Me and didn't realize all of the homoerotic implications thereof. But <laughs> there's Freddy trying to get this guy to kill for him, and there's, a, there's some confusion in the beginning about is Freddy doing it, is, the, is this guy doing it, it's actually Jesse, he winds up being saved by his girlfriend. And just, it's just an, it's an oddity, it's an aberration in the sense of the tone of this of these all of these movies. Now, Sean, you mentioned before you can't hate the you don't feel you can hate the movie and I I, I can't. I watched it again fully expecting to just feel nothing but sorrow and misery and vitriol. I can't. I can't because God love it. It's trying. It's just, it's trying in such a misguided, horrible direction. 
it's it, because it was at that point where, despite how well the first Nightmare on Elm Street did, if if a lot of the stories are to be believed, including Never Sleep Again, the studio still didn't have a lot of money. Um, at the very least, to be certain from the sounds of it, Robert England's agent especially had keyed to early to early on what everybody realizes. He is the one true Freddy. Thou shalt worship no Freddies above him. And had gone to Bob Shea asking for a considerably more lucrative deal to come back from the sequel. And New Line tried to find any way they could around that. It's my opinion that the fact that at what little screen time Freddy actually really gets throughout this entire movie up until the last reel is a consequence of that. It's just a consequence of the fact that they had to get get around not having him as much as they could and probably trying to really do what they could to cut back his pay and how much they used him because every minute he was on set was just costing them more money. Uh, They didn't get John Saxon and Heather Langenkamp or even Wes Craven back, probably in no small part because Wes never intended for there to be a sequel. He intended for the first movie to be that rare, self-contained, one-and-done horror story. And, you know, he's always had, to put it mildly, a contentious relationship with Bob Shea. Even though with even though without having both of even though without having both of them, without one or the other, there is no first nightmare on Elm Street. And I guess it's not the worst overall premise of having Freddy possess somebody. It's damn sure be- sure better than the climax that we get. But it's just so ridiculously executed at every fucking turn. <laughs> because this this supposed subtext is just it is played so straight and so nonchalantly ignored the entire time that 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 we are all Austin Bowers pointing at Fred Savage and screaming, Mole! Mole! There's the mole! Nobody wants to say it, but it's a mole! <laughs> it, it, it is a great big mole in the center of the room. And in the end, the the finished product, and God love them, they're trying, they're trying to execute everything they do so well. Well, except for the exploding parakeet scene. Everybody had acknowledged that that was a bad idea. <laughs> but but even, the, even the dumbest shit they're trying to do, God damn it, they're trying to adhere to the vision of it so well that it's honest-to-God effort, but it's effort at something that should have never been committed to celluloid in the first place. Um, it's... It's impossible to not enjoy watching this movie. All right, hang on. For the counterpoint to that, Ben, you said you would take the stance of you hate this movie? No, I I actually... I've never hated this movie. Okay. Sorry, I misunderstood (laughs) you then. 
So tell me, so what about it appeals to you? Well, what about this movie? You know, I'm not trying to get anyone to come out here when I say stuff like that. I promise. <laughs> I'm just curious. <laughs> so what about this movie? You know, what do you like about it? You know, are you with Sean in that it's just so ridiculous you can't help but feel a certain set of sort of charm towards it? I don't even I don't even know if it's that. I mean, you know, I when I first I was very young when I first saw this movie, so all of the you know all the homoeroticism went soaring way far above my head. Um, so you know, it didn't dawn on me until much later all the stuff that was there. I mean. It's not. It's barely subtext. It's it's text, okay? Like super text. Let's be <laughs> this let's be caps. honest here. But I I don't care. Like it's you know at at worst it's you know it's harmless and it's you know at worst it's really when you know that uh, you know some some of the people involved with this were totally in on it and some weren't. It's, it makes it that much more hilarious. Uh, you know, aside from that, you throw all of that away, and you I honestly think you still have a pretty decent horror movie on your hands, uh, you know, underneath all of the snickering and, you know, and the big capital letter, you know, homoeroticism. Um, the, you know, I'm, I always... You know, I always love uh, the effects in, in most of the Elm Street movies. This one had some great scenes, some great effects scenes. The transformation towards the end was awesome. Um, you know, some things were better than others. Uh, I always had this theory about Elm Street 2 and, and really like the whole Elm Street series. If you want to, you know, if you want to try to, you know, get continuity between all of these movies, I always had this theory in my head that uh, each movie would show Freddy in different stages or different levels of how strong he was. And the stronger he is, the more influence he has over the physical world. So that's how I rationalize, you know, what happens later on in the movie where Freddy, you know, basically comes into the real world and he's doing, still doing, like, supernatural stuff. I just figured, okay, well... This is him at his strongest. It's not the best explanation for it, but it kind of works in my head anyway. And that's where we're going to have to disagree. All right. Um, I, I think <laughs> the idea of, possess, of Freddy possessing somebody who kills in the real world, okay, that part I actually kind of like. I think there's possibilities there. However... Looking at looking at the end, I kind of tend to take Wes Craven's side on that. It's the fact that Freddy's power has always come from the fact that he gets these teenagers where they're absolutely vulnerable when they're asleep. And they're at their most vulnerable because, number one, well, they're defenseless. He's getting literally right inside their minds, right inside the inner workings of their psyches and is able to sniff out the weak sniff out the weak points just so so easily but it's also the fact that that makes him for the most part physically immortal he's in, he's invulnerable there he 
cannot be touched. He cannot really be harmed. In the first movie, he never willingly comes in to the real physical world. He comes into it because Nancy brought him into it. And he just kind of ends up making the most of it while he's there, but physically, predictably, he also takes a pounding. Now, given what he endured there, why would he willingly want to come into the physical world again, knowing what the downside of that's going to be? Why is he willing to just forfeit all the absolute power, all the invulnerability, all the advantages that he has in the world of dreams to come into the real world and fuck up a pool party. It doesn't make sense from a character standpoint, and that's the downside of not having Wes involved, is the fact that he gets not just what makes people afraid, but he really digs deep to understand why it makes them afraid and exploits that in in any movie where he's really at his best. Not just Nightmare on Elm Street, either. And I will give Ben this. Um, I don't think the movie has very many truly impressive practical effects moments, quite like what first nightmare had but that transformation sequence that is outstanding oh yeah that is yeah that is imaginative and resource and resourceful on a low budget on par with just about anything that filmmakers did with any of the bigger budget sequels going forward um it's better than almost anything we got in Freddy's Dead, the final nightmare, at which point, you know, New Line, after years of successful sequels, should have banked enough money to, to at least make a truly visually stunning movie. Can I throw something else out here real quick? Well, um, I, mean, I, may, I may be about to commit some horror movie blasphemy, especially on this show. Um, for the longest time... Uh, because I didn't know exactly when these two movies came out. I actually thought that Hellraiser had come out before Nightmare on Elm Street 2, and I always got kind of like a sort of a Hellraiser, like surrealist vibe off of some of the things that they were trying to do in, in Elm Street 2, and it, it didn't work nearly as well as Clive Barton did in, in Hellraiser. Uh, and I didn't find out until much later Hellraiser actually came out two years later. But it... Uh, First of all, like, you know, some of the weird stuff towards the end where uh, Lisa goes to the to the plant and, and there are these, you know, these dogs with human faces and all of this other weird shit that they tried to shoehorn in at the last minute. And I always, yeah, like, it, it, it doesn't work, but it feels like that was what they were trying to do or what I thought when before I realized that, you know, this movie actually came first. On top of that, um, Christopher Young also scored uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 as well. Um, so uh, that, that, that it, it's it. such a shame that, uh, oh, that we. Well, it's a shame that we over that you know the soundtrack for two gets overlooked because as you know, you and I, Sean, on our Hellraiser podcast, spent a good fifteen minutes just praising the guy's score for that movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And this is also a movie that I need to rewatch it again and kind of shelve the, you know, you know, the giggle and laugh at the you know, at all the gay stuff and just, you know, take it in a different light. It But, you know, I'm I'm kind of I I see where you guys are coming from in the sense that we probably could have put this on last week's discussion if for no other reason than you know, it, it might not be in necessarily, you know, the same sphere as some of the others, but it's not bad. It's in the sense that, you know, oh, there's this vile hatred of it that we get for some of these movies. You're giving so. it a letter grade. You could you could argue for a you know somewhere in the C range. You know, it's it's adequate. All we needed was a little bow wow run in where everyone could call him Twink, and it would have been complete. <laughs> His name is Twink. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but I'll tell you. I think my favorite part of this movie, again, I, I'm with you guys. I love the transformation sequence. It's really not. It's really well done. I also, the only other moment in this movie that kind of gets under your skin a little bit is, ironically enough, at the pool party scene. But it's not during the, you know, he's running around slashing people. It's actually that moment when he stops and he's like right in front of a tiki torch or a, little, or a fire in a, the pool house or something like that. So there's flames behind him, and Freddy just holds out his arms and goes, "You're all my children now." Yes. And, and uh, interestingly enough, uh, in Never Sleep Again, Robert England mentions that that's not necessarily in the script. That was just the character talking to him in that circumstance. And it's one of those moments that's like genuinely Freddy. It's able to capture kind of the essence of everything. And it, was, sadly, it was also the only Nightmare on Elm Street 2 moment that was worth parodying in New Nightmare. <laughs> also true. Other, otherwise, everything else just pretends this movie never happened. <laughs> Maybe it's out of chronology. We're finally working back towards catching up with Freddy's Revenge. Uh, I, but... You know, I, I'm kind of with you guys. You've, you've uh, turned me around. I was prepared to have my, you know, my issues with this movie, and there are issues. I mean, again, we all mentioned the exploding parakeet scene, which, to anyone out there, if you don't want to watch the movie, just go to YouTube. Look up Elm Street exploding parakeet. You will not be disappointed. Actually, the other thing about this movie that makes it worth its existence is... God, God knows we we've tempted this movie out, this documentary out so many times. The it, the entire segment on it in Never Sleep Again, but especially the interviews with Clue Gallagher. Hell yes, he just <laughs> he just has so damn much fun with how bad he knows this movie was. Right down to him doing what I can only describe as an, as a pretty pretty excellent real life Herbert the Pervert impression. When 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 recalling new when recalling um New Line founder and CEO Bob Shea in the in the leather outfit as the bartender in the gay bar. Has Bob Shea been in all of these? I know I in most I've, of them. I've seen him in most of them. I can't remember if he's been in all of them though. He's he's tried to force his way into all into all of them because as, as again as the documentary makes fun of him for repeatedly it, it's like he's secretly a frustrated actor that never made it and he kind of kept coming along and trying to demand these juicy little parts for himself and 
this was one where the director just kind of <laughs> shot back at him. Okay, smartass, we got a good role for you. <laughs> go, you get to wear leather. Go to this place and find yourself a leather outfit. <laughs> no, seriously, that's pretty. From from the sound, yeah, of it, that's, that's pretty much how the conversation went. He took his daughters to the store. They were helping him pick out stuff. <laughs> Moron. Uh, you're the early '80s. What can you say? <laughs> All right, but. Despite, you know, some of the fun we've poked at it and everything, this was another financially successful movie. And I think all of these movies were. It's just they got worse as time went on, and eventually we did, they all decided to pull the plug. But So following this, we get, as we talked about uh, last time around, Dream Warriors, which brought people back, and we got a good movie, and we all enjoyed pretty much everything to do with that one. Well, following Dream Warriors, and it's monumental success. I mean, that was... You know, the first two made money, as far as that goes. Dream Warriors made a lot of money. So, we get a sequel, and ironically enough, made the most money for quite some time. And here's... This is not an original theory of my... It's not an original theory. I will tell all of you this. If you want to know which movie in a franchise is probably the best, give or take... It's not exact science, give or take. Find the movie that made the most money. Then watch the one that came before it. And that's probably one of the better... That's probably the best one. That's the one that... Yeah. But here we get... So this brings us to Nightmare 4, The Dream Master. And, uh... Oh, boy. All right. I'll briefly do... I'll do a brief plot for this one, just so everyone can... Because we're jumping around a lot here, but just really briefly. Following Freddy being defeated in Dream Warriors, he was defeated by being buried in consecrated ground, which made sense. A little bit of logic there. Who'd have thought? And we, we fast forward a little bit. We find the three principals who survived the first one. Uh, going to high school, being normal. We have to recast Patricia Arquette because apparently we don't want a good actress. <sighs> and the main and there's some rumblings that maybe that maybe things aren't all kosher. We're introduced to Alice, who's not an uninteresting character in the sense that she is a lucid dreamer. And for those of you who don't know, that's you're essentially conscious while you're dreaming to one degree or another. So you can have fun in your dreams. You know, normally you just kind of go about your business. I think most people have lucid, a lucid dream experience. Or, uh, but she daydreams and has these lucid dreams all the time. And So we're introduced to her and then, well, there's some poor dog that wandering through the junkyard where Freddy was buried decides, hey, this will be a good spot to take a flaming piss. And that's not an adjective, people. That's actually fire shooting out of this poor dog. This desecrates the holy ground. Incidentally, there must be a lot of people in cemeteries all over the world who have to be reconsecrated. <laughs> Their ground has to be reconsecrated on a daily basis. But this releases Freddy, who summarily kills uh, the three people who survived the first movie. 
<laughs> because that's the golden rule of horror movies, folks. If you survive your installment in the franchise, if you get asked back for the next one, you're dying. You're going to bite it. And they do quickly, including uh, Freddy's The Awful line, well, how's this for a wet dream? Which, if that was the worst pun Freddy ever made, I'd be mad, but I could live with it. Sadly, it's not. But we'll get to more of it. It's not. It's not. Not even the worst pun in that movie. No, it's not. But he disposes of them. uh, The the girl portrayed by... Uh, played by Patricia Arquette in, the, in three, and I can't remember any of these characters' names, so I'm going to apologize right off the bat. Chris but Martyr. as uh, thank you, as Freddy is killing her, she pulls Alice into her dream and is somehow able able to impart her dream power to her, which is she can pull people into her dreams. And we go from there, and Freddy resumes killing people. But in this circumstance, he's killing all the people around Alice. He's able to, like, channel himself through her constant daydreaming and violently murder people around her. Well, in some cases, not so violently. In some cases, Freddy's not even in the room that we can see. Uh, She's able to defeat him in the end by harnessing the power of all the people who Freddy has killed. She's able to take a little bit of them before he, because she's there consciously while he does it. She gets a little bit of, from each of them, and she's able to overcome Freddy at the end, and he blows, and all the souls that he's stolen are placed onto his chest. Which is actually, I mean, it sounds stupid, but it's actually a really kind of cool visual that all the people Freddy has killed are actually, like, physically a part of him in the dream world. That originated in part three. Yeah. And so we play on that, and they revolt, Freddy gets blown up, and we move on, but there's a reflection of Freddy in the uh, fountain, and because, you know, Freddy never really dies. Alright, so that, there's your brief kind of rundown as to how we got from, oh, he's buried in consecrated ground. Well, there's a dog. Because random strays just releasing horror demons all over the world. Of course, a bunch of, a couple of drunken frat boys decided, hey, I hear Jason's buried around here, so anything goes. Sean... I think the biggest crime from this movie is not so much that it's not good. I mean, we, 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 you know, it's horror, so we maybe alter our expectations a little bit from time to time. It's that for some reason we got Rennie Harlan out of this. Oh, hi, Freddy. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. For those of you who don't know, hey, Rennie hey, Harlan. Hey. Wait, Rennie Harlan, hey. Rennie Harlan, the, the virtuoso director that, you know that brought an Oscar-caliber performance out of John Cena, a breakout crossover appearance by, from John Cena in 12 rounds. Is that Rennie Harlan? <laughs> ah, great story, Ben. <laughs> okay, for those Everybody of you who don't... on this movie betray me. I fed up with this world. <laughs> <laughs> those of you who don't know, Rennie Harlan was nobody. And then for some reason was given, uh, you know, they tell the story about how he was just really persistent about being involved in one of these, in a movie, and he got the this The story movie. is, basically, he was hot, that Rachel, Rachel Talele, I'm sorry if she ever hears I mispronounced her name, 
hired him because she got sick of the giant foul-smelling Finlander hanging around the studios looking like, looking like Thor and smelling like death itself. Well, <laughs> you would, too. Basically, the idea was more or less, if we give you a job directing a film in our, in our flagship franchise, after you're done, will you go away? Well, sadly, he did I'm not hold twi- up his end of the bargain. I gotta this twist the knife a little bit more. How, okay, is, go ahead, man. This is, this is the Hang on, John. To if we give, it, if on, we give the dog a steak, it'll go away. <laughs> John, hold okay. on, John, hold on. I, I gotta twist the knife in, in you a little bit more. I, okay. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. He directed four episodes of Burn Notice. <laughs> that, you know what? That doesn't entirely surprise me. Okay. Because uh, if, because if you because if you look at the rest of if you look at the rest of this dippy Scandinavian filmography, it also includes the, it also includes the fact that he also made Die Hard two, The Long Kiss Goodnight, Deep Blue Sea, Twelve like Rounds. He murdered, he murdered the pirate genre for twenty years with oh, yeah, Island. Yeah. That was yeah, not a that, hang on, hang on. I'm going to disagree slightly. I actually enjoy that movie. Okay, that's all well and good if you enjoyed it. Nobody asked, did Robert like it? The simple fact is, for as much as we shit on the Tommy Wiseaus and Uva Bowles of the world, the fact is, Rennie Harlan, and only Rennie Harlan, holds the distinction of being the man that directed the Guinness World Record biggest box office flop of all time. Also, he is he is the 87th highest grossing director of all time, and yet Guinness, the Guinness Book of World Records recognize him. I'm not sure if it's still the case. Probably. But, but recognize the fact that in his that in his desire to shoot his spouse up the ranks, that would only later be matched by Paul fucking W. S. Anderson and Mila Jovovich. He actually. I'd say Burton and ma- Carter are on par. What'd you say? I'd say Burton and Carter are probably on par. Uh, well, but I, but again, we're we're talking just you know pound for pound, black and white numbers don't don't lie here. He has actually been recognized as pretty much the single most financially destructive filmmaker in one shot of all time. Nobody else can say that. And, it's true. And, you know, let's, let's get the good things about this movie out of the way. Once right. more, as is the case with almost every Nightmare on Elm Street movie up until the remake, it is visually impressive. In the fact Thank that you. the kills are actually, for the most part, uh, about half of them are actually well-conceived ideas for kills. Well, we'll get okay. to the rest in a moment. Hang on. I, before you go too much further, I want to ask your opinion of probably the one that sticks out with me the most, at least, and that is the girl who hates bugs being turned into a cockroach. Okay. I actually kind of like that one. series. What, Sorry, what was that, Ben? Top three of all time in the series. And I would agree with that. That was, that was a great one. Okay, um, that's the only one I wanted I actually, to get your opinion on right off the bat. 
Um, I, I actually thought that I thought that Joey's death was pretty well realized because the fact is is the one thing, well, the two things really I should say that really carried down well from Wes Craven's involvement were number one, the casting of Robert England from the get go was a stroke of genius, as well as New Line's eventual concession after trying to cast a replacement for him in Nightmare 2, that, no. Yeah, we'll, no we'll take a stunt, really man. Is, That'll nobody, work, right? Yeah they, they re, yeah, they tried it, and they realized, no, there really is nobody else that has any business, do, any business doing this because nobody else really brings the makeup alive through the character and through the costume and through the glove quite the way that Robert England does. But the other thing that gets carried down is how continually inventive and resourceful and imaginative they always were in constructing the practical effects. And this is yet another movie that proves that only in the rarest of occasions does CGI ever trump just doing things for real and just finding a way to actually physically do it on the set. All of that being said, the absolute <laughs> unmitigated disaster that was Rennie Harlan's first directing gig is reason enough alone to, again, go watch the documentary. You have to hear the stories that almost every person involved with this movie has about this man. Uh, my personal favorites of the bunch. First off, Rennie actually okaying and actively supporting a costume that was so skimpy to that Tuesday night, who replaced P Patricia Arquette as Kristen in this movie, refused to be seen on set in it. Uh, there was actually walking up, actually walking up to, and uh, hang on, let me look her. Let me look her name up here. Um, actually walking up to uh, uh, Toy Newkirk, uh, who played Sheila, and actually telling her that she has to ADR all her lines because that's not how a black person would talk. Because <laughs> he'd know. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, there, there's, there, there's watching this 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 goofy this goofy oblivious little dipshit actually start chuckling at juxtaposed with the footage and memory of a little Japanese woman being crushed beneath a giant replica of Freddy's torso that tipped over because it wasn't secured well enough. There was Robert England basically having to be talked back onto the set because he was so stressed. And through all of it, and by the way, I might, I might add, when he made the little remark to Sheila after she bawled him out later, in his interview for the documentary, again, grinning that goofy, uber bowl grin of his, his excuse was, I'm from Finland, I didn't know any better. <laughs> his excuse for everything was, oh, no, 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 that doesn't sound accurate, that might have been Bob Shea's fault. No, seriously, everything, everything they confront him about, 
everything. He always goes. He always goes back and says, "Oh no, 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 no! That sounds like that was probably Bob Shea." And yes, there's a reason why oh, I keep geez. doing the Tommy Wiseau impression. <laughs> God damn, what he sounds like. He he is like if you've ever seen the room, if you've ever seen the stringy black hair, the 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 doughy dimpled cellulite ridden body, and the permanently sounding sounding sloshed voice, you've got a pretty good idea of what Rennie Harlan sounds like, except he's gigantic, Finnish, has hair like has hair like Thor. And somehow managed to have a career of his own after this movie, unlike Tommy. Uh, yeah, you, there's. <laughs> you, you gave the window licker in the helmet the keys to a Ferrari. And all just because you wanted him to get off your lot. Well, somewhat in his defense, he made them a freaking truckload of money. Although, yeah, but you know, well, the flip yeah, side you know is, I, again, the flip side, anybody, my somewhat, my, when did this movie come out? Hang on. 88. Okay, I was three. I might have been able to do a better job from a directoral standpoint. Yeah, but you know what? The thing is, a decline doesn't always start with the movie that gets the shitty reviews. Sometimes it it starts with actually a shitty movie that came first, but somehow managed to get raves, and then the studio decided to just keep going, despite not realizing just what they had set in motion. And in this case, what I've been talking about throughout this whole series finally happened, and that was this... This, this simple-minded little man-child admittedly came up with the brilliant idea that he basically wanted to conceive a Nightmare on Elm Street movie as, I kid you not, more or less his words, a kung fu-style action movie. Mm-hmm. And, uh. this was what, and he pretty much decided that he wanted to put Freddy front and center as just the rock star of the whole franchise and take everything threatening out of him. And, you know, up to this point, what had worked with Nightmare on Elm Street was the exact opposite of what tended to work with Friday the 13th. In Friday the 13th, it's pretty easy throughout the entire series, even the bad movies, to just get invested in the pure schlock, in the bloodlust, in just watching the cannon fodder get mowed down one after the, one after the next. But you never really get invested in anybody because that's just not the way the formula works. And that works fine for Friday the 13th. With Nightmare on Elm Street, when it works, it's because you actually become invested in some of the people that Freddy is hunting and you actually want them to live. This movie is the start of where that ceases to happen. After he kills off the first three, we really don't have much engagement with anybody else that we really want to live after that because everything is set up just for it to be the Freddy Krueger show. He's no longer limited to, 
limited to the shadows where finally revealing him actually means something and where you get that lingering, that foreboding presence. Instead, he's always right there in your face, and instead of becoming the boogeyman that knows when to slip out of the shadows in front of you at just the right time, now all of a sudden, he's like when you're a kid and you have that one teacher or that one authority figure that decides that the way to get through to you and discipline you is to get in your face and start yelling at you, and ultimately, you just can't hold back the laughter. And it just takes all the punch out of it. Just right out of everything. So despite really having some well-conceived and imaginative kills, the invisible kung fu fight scene notwithstanding... Come on, Good Lord. Freddy's awesome. Yes, you heard... Uh, yeah, the story in that one being the actor actually went and took months and months of martial arts lesson, lessons, and as he put it, got to the set and they wanted him to do a bunch of wild-winging, roundhouse punch, John Wayne cowboy bullshit. But otherwise, it was the movie that took everything scary out of Freddy for the next two movies that would come after it. And once that's gone... For the most part, usually... Genie's out of the bottle. Yeah. yeah there is no putting the toothpaste back in the tube. And in this case, yeah, we got through the entire movie, and it was profitable and made money, but it set the direction that they would try to carry forward into the next two movies. And unfortunately, those would be the two movies in which they would learn one after the next that really... What Rennie did, what Rennie did in the Dream Master was the worst possible idea. Yeah, it was not a good one. All right, Ben, you mentioned that you were gonna. I think this is one of the ones you were gonna kind of defend. So, I'm curious. What, yeah. What's your favorite parts about this one? I mean, we can all agree it's got some issues. But what what about what is it about this movie that you enjoy? This. I try um, to get my dog to shut up. He's he's. He's ready to piss fire, man. He's, uh, um, this is the movie, like, you know, as, as loath as I am to admit it, this, this is a movie that made me a Freddy fan. Uh, kind, of by, kind of by default, because, you know, really, a really quick story. Um, you know, when I was a little kid and this, first, this movie first came out, uh, I think I was, like, in second grade, um, I would stay after school at a friend of mine's house, me and some other friends. Uh, and and uh, her mom was a, a huge horror fan, like a huge slasher movie fan. So she had every Nightmare on Elm Street movie up to that point, every Friday the 13th movie up to that point. She had subscriptions like Fangoria and Gorezone and all these awesome horror magazines from the 80s. That's, that was my, like, horror 101 uh, and every day we would go after school, and it would be you know open up your open up your books, do your homework, take a horror movie, put it on. So mm-hmm. I must have watched like Elm Street three and four was on you know when I was there at least once a week. Um, so it's a sentimental favorite for me. Uh, there's things wrong with it that I tend to be able to overlook. There's serious, horrible, horrible things wrong with it. Uh, 
I think it's hilarious that literally you can't get any more literal than this. The moment that this franchise jumped the shark was the moment that Freddy plays a shark. Oh, God, those fucking sunglasses. Yeah, no, that was that was where the whole thing... I was with that movie, you know, even to this day, I'm with that movie right up until that point, and then that's when things start to fall apart. And there's good things that happen in that movie afterwards, but there's no going back from that. There really uh, isn't. What, what, what I would give to have a time machine and go back to the moment that the Thor Doofus son walked up to Robert England and said, oh, hi, Robert. So for here, for this shot, Freddie is going to smile and put on these sunglasses. Just because I want to see if I can make a bet with somebody and actually win that at that moment, Robert raised an eyebrow and for one time, one shining moment in history, Freddy Krueger actually got to say to somebody, Riri says what? <laughs> this, is, this is the thing. If, you, if anybody's, anybody's ever seen Robert England in any, any interview that he does, not just Never Sleep Again, any interview that he does where he talks about the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, he will find something to love about the absolute dirt worst entries in this franchise. Yeah, he he will, will find some positive about that. He's a really cool, like, positive person. You have to be a special kind of piece of shit to get under Robert England's skin. <laughs> well, know? he actually... Well, so as you bring that up, I think one of my favorite kind of moments from this movie, and I think it ranks pretty highly in general for the series, is the the dream loop, wherein Alice comes out of, I think, the diner. She meets yeah, her boyfriend. I'll give you we got to get out I of like here. The dream loop. Be cool. They re- and they repeat that sequence a couple of times, and it's a little it's a little hint because I mean I tend to subscribe to Stephen King's philosophy that hell is repetition, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. with you just enough aware of it to realize what's going on before you reset again. I think it so, works. Uh, one other thing, I'll, I'll wrap this up in just a second. Okay. Yeah. Good. Mm-hmm. One last, I want to just touch one more thing and that's the the um the effects and then sean mentioned this everybody talks about the dog pissing fire and that's really stupid but not enough people talk about what comes after that and that's like you know you know maybe there's some more horror movie blasphemy on its way but i'm going to mention hellraiser again and that's like the freddy rebirth thing that's like one, some of the best reverse stop motion I've seen in a in a horror flick. Oh no, I'll give this, you that one. Oh, oh it is razor, man. That's it's up there with oh, freaking awesome and I, himself. And that and you know, that, that, made me a, that, 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 that made me a Freddy that, fan. And that's that's an effect that in a lot of movies really can and often does just look absolutely terrible and you almost feel the need to apologize for it and and, and swear up First and down. Evil dead. It was, it, 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 you know, it, it, it is the onion tied to the belt. It, it, it was the style at the time. <laughs> it, it, you just, it just, it's like it was a different time. It was the best. It was the best they can make. They can make do with. Uh, but 
those those are two movies, Hellraiser and this one, in which it actually does manage to work pretty effectively. Um, I think that I think that Clive Barker shot it and conceived it more effectively in his movie. Maybe. So so in that sense, he kind of took this this same concept and really ran with it and in, and improved on it. But it's the yeah, it really is the one thing that you can say throughout almost every movie. And, and when we get to Freddy's Dead, I will even pick out one particular sequence of that where I, I really did actually like the kill. I, I actually thought it came thought it came across please, pretty well. Please tell me that's Freddy on a remote control directing Virtual Freddy to snap the kid with a towel. Mother of all the fucks, no. <laughs> No, we'll we'll get to the, we'll get to that one, but it's and it's not. I can't even really say that it's a horribly conceived story, or that it's necessarily badly acted by anybody. The acting is it's on par with the rest with the rest of the movies. I mean, it's a crying shame they couldn't get Patricia Arquette back, but unfortunately, uh, she was. It, her performance in three kind of backfired on New Line. They they couldn't secure for this one, so we had to settle for Tuesday night allegedly confl- fucking her way into her close-up. Oh, boy. I, I heard conflicting stories about that. Like, I don't know what the deal is with that, but I've heard at least one other story that said that they never even approached her about it. I could be wrong about that, but, you know... Uh, it's worth. I guess it's worth mentioning. Well, well, yeah, that's that's one of those that's one of those things that the documentary actually never really does clear up. Is everybody that they talked to said said you know to a man and woman, I have no idea why she didn't come back. I mean, there, everybody just kind of stuck to the supposition that oh she, pro- well I mean she probably blew up so much with her performance that she just became more. They just couldn't afford her anymore. She probably had a commitment to something else, but. Oh, I have no idea why she. She read back. the Whatever script and said no. <laughs> that's a, but that's a, but what? Yeah, that supposition, yes, but also the affirmation that this movie probably would have been so much better with her. Right. Well, yeah, because everybody, everybody they asked about it all said, you know, uh, uh, in particular, um, uh, Ken Ken Sago's and Rodney Eastman both said, when we did our scenes with Tuesday, it just wasn't the same. It wasn't the same chemistry. It just wasn't as much fun for us. Because she's terrible. <laughs> she has she has exactly... I will give her one line in this movie that, she, that, that was good, and that was, uh, you just murdered me. That was badass. Other than that... Mm-hmm. She's terrible in this movie. She couldn't have died fast enough for me. Yeah. Uh, Rooting for Freddy to kill people. Not the way your horror franchise should go. It's it's a movie wherein, yes, it was made for $13 million, and it grossed $49.4 million at the box office, roughly. Yes, uh, I will grant that. But it's one of those movies where if you're talking to a fan, what immediately becomes apparent is that the story is not bad, but it's in fact the nature of the kills 
and what they made of Freddy that really sets it back and that really sets the stage for the utter debacle that would be the dream child. Ooh, you and I get to disagree just a little bit, it seems. <laughs> All right, uh, that that is going to wrap this one up. Oh, real briefly, you each get one choice. Uh, ben, I'll start with you. Freddy's worst pun from uh, Master of Dreams, from Dream Master. Worst pun uh, from Part Four, you mean? Yeah. Uh, oh, when uh, uh, when Dan is in the dream and Freddy's the doctor and he goes Kruger and Freddy goes, well, it ain't Doctor Seuss. Yeah, that that's it. <laughs> Sean, your worst one from this? Toss up between that one and how's this for a wet dream? All right. But as you just mentioned, it made a lot of money. So whatever, you know, some of the reaction to it, and again, there are some good and bad to this one. Again, I, I see where, you're, where Sean's coming from in that it may not be the worst entry in and of itself. It's more what it, what it led to, what it spawned, as opposed to being bad necessarily by itself. Because we get some cool kills. We also get Invisible Kung Fu Freddy. God. <laughs> this is not like new pass, that but he was fast as lightning. <laughs> <laughs> was a little bit frightening. No, it wasn't. Not really, which is the problem. This isn't Japan. It's not a Japanese professional wrestling promotion where they have a blow-up doll as one of their champions. Supposedly because it's not a goddamn kung fu movie. Also true. But, again, Pig Hostage, who happens to be worth money. We have profitability, and the studio can always use money, so we chug on full steam ahead to Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child, which I just kind of re-saw recently in preparation for this. No, this is actually one of the ones I watched today, so a little bit fresh in my mind. This movie picks up a little bit after the events of Dream Master. Alice um, starts having nightmares again. Uh, Dan, her boyfriend, gets killed by Freddy. It's revealed that she's pregnant. Freddy's trying to... He's using the child being in a dreamlike state in utero to exact his, you know, malicious plans throughout the world. And he will then, like, use the child as his new portal or, I mean, just a little bit of that and then he will be re-released to the world no longer trapped by Alice who for some reason has to be the heroine once again. Sadly, not the kind of heroine that makes you feel good. Oh, boy. And we get a little bit of Amanda Kruger, Freddy's mother, being involved and Freddy is vanquished at the end by the little kid who apparently has some the consciousness of an 8- to 10-year-old spitting on Freddy and him being pulled apart and back into hell. No, no, sorry, this is the one where he gets pulled back, apparently in some sort of psychic utero with Amanda, and is then locked away for a couple of years until the next movie comes out. I will say this. There's a couple of things I want to say uh, positively about this movie and then everyone else can disagree with me as they choose. I really liked uh, 
some of the dream sequences in this. I thought they were well done. I thought they were well constructed. From a physical standpoint, I liked the kind of dark gothic feel that they gave the asylum where Amanda was raped and uh, Freddy was born and all that fun stuff. There's a cut, so I liked that. I liked some of the tone that they were able to achieve with that. Sadly, it's all kind of for naught because there's a bunch of people you don't care about. You get this is where we get Super Freddy. <laughs> Super oh, Freddy God. comes out of this. Oh fuck me! Stronger than a hundred maniacs and faster than a local than a local lunatic. It's Super Freddy. We, uh, okay, so there's a couple of those things that I like. I actually liked uh, kind of the M.C. Escher vibe that you get as Alice is trying to find Jacob, her unborn son. And But again, th- those are a couple of things. So those are my positives for the movie. And for the negatives, again, Super Freddy. Do I have to say all that much more? Uh, God, there's just so much that I feel goes off the rails here. So, Sean, let's go ahead and start with you. What goes wrong? What <laughs> happened here? Well, from your oh, perspective, God. what happened? Okay, first off, I'll be fair and be complimentary. Yeah, the kills, for the most part, are outstanding. And once more, the practical effects are brilliantly achieved and well-executed, practically, practically, almost throughout the entire movie. You know, the speed demon is pretty cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, oh. actually, that's actually that's one of the true highlights. And had they not used it quite so much, I really would have enjoyed the dark gothic feel of certain scenes. However, ultimately, I'm just more a fan of the more surrealistic moments of all of the other good movies, but especially the first movie and Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Because in those, Wes in places manages to blend Freddy's world and the real world much more seamlessly than the sequels that followed ever did. He managed to strike the tone just right, to blend them just so. In this, the contrast is stark. Don't get me wrong, the gothic look and everything is visually impressive, and in the right moments, it certainly does make you fearful. However, kind of takes you out of having your mind bent. And as always, of course, Robert England is absolutely on point, even when delivering some of, delivering a couple of the worst lines of the entire series. Specifically, it's a boy! <laughs> and also, I told you comic books was bad for you. <sighs> that bugged me because it made no sense. I mean, nobody ever said... I, don't, I assume no one ever said that to him. I mean, I get you want to you throw a jab at the guy who reads comics fine and dandy, but that's the best you could come up with? Really? I'll, I'm sorry. I'll take, sorry kid, I don't believe in fairy tales over that one. Any day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All that being all that being said, unfortunately, this movie suffers from the exact same thing that really put me off of Saw Six. It becomes 
Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5. Message! Yeah. Just a little bit. One, one fucking kill after another. I mean, we're trying to squeeze in taking pot shots at drunk driving and eating disorders and abortion and teenagers having and keeping babies and just one after another after another. And just as I've established before, is what I go to see horror movies for. Yeah. It's just, there are ways that if you want to make, if you want to make little points and comment metaphorically on adolescence and growing up and the lack of trust between teenagers and parents, there are ways to do it. Like, say, the way the first movie did it. Or if you want to comment on a deconstruction of what horror movies have done to society, there's a way to do it. Like Wes Craven's New Nightmare did it. Oh, look, there's something in common between those two. This is not the way to do it. The way to do it is not to make it so, make it so obvious that I'm practically choking on it while I'm just trying to escape from everything else and, in just, and just enjoy a foreboding, far-flung tale. And unfortunately, you get beaten over the head with it so many times, and sometimes in such a cornball fashion, yeah. that it just makes the movie next to impossible to enjoy. And also, Baby Freddy. <laughs> Baby Freddy. Baby Freddy. Okay, uh, Ben. Jim Henson Horror Babies. Because we need more of those. <laughs> hey, Ben, remind me, was this the movie that, when talking about it on the Never Sleep Again, they mentioned that it was rewritten five or six different times by different collaborations of people? Yeah, I think I think this was the one that they were working on, like, till the last second, and, you know, they were building and, and sets shows. up, working on different parts. Yeah, no, it's super rust. It's rust as hell, and it shows... Uh, Freddy's makeup sucks, by the way. It's the first time where I can say, like, when we're talking about, like, some entries in the series, the makeup is half-ass. Well, here we go. Uh, <laughs> it's like it's a quarter not ass. good. Yeah. Uh, uh, some of the prosthetics, though. Yeah, some of the practical effects, mostly on the uh, on some of the other kills, especially the motorcycle one, are pretty awesome. Apparently, uh, they also talk about this in the documentary. The MPAA, like you know, took the hatchet to this to this movie, and, and I, I would have liked to see some kind of director's cut where they put all that stuff back in. Um, what I will say, and and Sean uh, got the ball rolling on this. This is the uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street movie that tries to tackle serious issues, quote unquote, like teen pregnancy and abortion. And um, I know. Uh, I know Sean's a huge Channel Awesome fan. I don't know if you've ever seen Doug Walker's vlog on, on Breaking Dawn. Um, but I'll echo that a little bit here in that, you know, this is not the time and not the place and not the level of talent required from the writers and crew that are available to do this movie to be able mm-hmm. to tackle this mm-hmm. kind of subject matter competently. They had, you know, they're, no, you're not... No, it's 
It's not. No, he, he's yeah, he's, end the, the, well. phrase, the phrase he kept using in that in that vlog as his face turned Kansas City Chiefs home jersey red uh, was, "You're not smart enough." Yes, thank you. Um, <laughs> and, and yes, I, I actually remember that vlog quite that vlog quite well. Um, it's the it was during that stretch when it seemed like everybody had something to say about that say about that movie. Um, when in truth, I think it was just everybody was trying to top what top what Spoonie said about the movie. <laughs> but um, that's what remind that's what this reminds me of. That that remind you know it, it reminds me of you know somebody who is completely inept at you know tackling the subject matter, trying to you know take it head on, and failing miserably. Um, the you know it was like it was like a five minute scene in the movie that was done and never mentioned again and it's you know they tried to make it have some resonance and it didn't it just didn't because this is it's a Nightmare on Elm Street movie what the hell are you doing and what are you why is your, you know the school special in my Nightmare on Elm Street movie you know, horror is not the may, genre for social commentary nine times if, out of ten if, actually if I may diverge on just a little bit of a tangent. You know who, surprisingly, well, actually, I shouldn't even say surprising. That sounds almost kind of belittling. But who admirably and consistently throughout his his Hallmark work has kind of done that kind of commentary pretty well? Joss Whedon. If, yeah, well, if, if you had to take somebody and kind of hold it up as an antithesis to this, as somebody who can take that kind of commentary and weave it well enough with the narrative and well enough with the action that it never feels like an intrusive, unwanted element. Go watch almost go watch the better seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Except for Beer Bat. Here Just, here's <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Um because really he he can take those themes and use kind of kind of a fine hand to where they're there underneath everything else on the surface that everybody wants to lose themselves in. Uh, i got to mute myself just, for just a second, so you two hold on for uh, Keep going, but I'm going to be muted for a second here. Okay, okay. I mean, in the better moments, he's able to deal with things like death and sexual assault and promiscuity and just the pains of growing up in such a way that the message is there, but it's blended with everything else well enough that either you don't realize you're getting it until you really stop and think about it later, or it's actually just spread out enough that you're actually kind of glad to see it. And it just flows well with everything else, and you kind of can't imagine the story without it. And... I agree with you on that. Here, here is a couple of things that Joss Whedon had the benefit of that this movie does not. Number one, talent. Uh, <laughs> number two, uh, a better cast. Uh, and number three, uh, 22, you know, in a good series that doesn't get canceled by Fox, uh, 20, you know, 22 to 24, 40-minute episodes per year. Um, you know, 
like I said, there, there's a time and a place for this sort of thing. And and if you got the if you got the chops for it and you got the talent for it and you're you're a good storyteller, by all means. But this was not. This was executed really, really lame. And uh, it just we'll, uh, we'll talk about down, teen you know? pregnancy and whatnot. But instead of taking men are after one thing and turning that into probably the best character he ever created, we yeah. turn it into. <laughs> and you know what? Actually, yeah. another show that's both an example of both this movie's outcome and a good outcome, Doctor Who. There are moments in Doctor Who where various people who have been showrunners throughout both the classic and the new series have been able to sort of take their stands on, very, on various bigger issues, both historical and contemporary. Uh, for example, from the new series... There's the episode, The Idiot's Lantern, and a commentary on sort of what the, the advent of television meant to the cultures around the world that embraced it, but obviously this being a BBC show, particularly Great Britain. And on the other hand, then again, you've also got episodes like, say, from the classic series, The Happiness Patrol. Okay. Which, 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 is just, which is just one big, clanging, blaring, screaming into, into the void, fuck you, to Margaret Thatcher. And I guess if, you, if I had to kind of refer to this movie as anything, it would be like a combination of that with some of the episodes from, say, Colin Baker's era when there really wasn't much of a budget, there was no studio support, and unfortunately, there was also a rushed production schedule. And as a result, everybody got kind of thrown under the bus after that. And such was the case with this movie. Because also, in addition to everything else we've mentioned, the rushed production, constant rewrites, the ill-conceived ill-conceived dream child. <laughs> social commentary, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's fun. That uh, was a good one. Social commentary. You've also got the fact that, unlike the other movies, this one only had an $8 million budget, and so I guess it shouldn't be considered a total misfire that it still managed to make $22.2 million worldwide at the box office. No, that would be uh, successful. All right. Uh, before we move on to their final entry, I once again will play the game Freddy's Worst Pun from uh, Dream Child. Sean, what do you got? I told you comic books was bad for you. As <laughs> he cuts up the paper version of the character. That was revenge for earlier, wasn't it? <laughs> Oh, all right. Ben, Freddy's worst pun, what do you got? What do you think? <laughs> when you consider how, then we'll, we're about to go there, how terrible Freddy's dead got, and this is still probably, I still probably hate that sequence worse than anything else in Freddy's dead. Like that, this this offends me as a comic book fan. 
<laughs> and you know, the, the thing is, the really sad part about that, I could have seen that actually being a comic-themed death. I could have actually seen that being pretty cool. Exactly. Um, exactly. I mean, it's so I, nice. I, I was thinking this past week, this past week um, Allison put out her latest Obscurus Lupa Presents, and it's a, a two-video look at Creepshow 3. One of the things she points out about the first couple movies is that the way they're lit and the way they're shot, it's made to look like a pulp horror comic. Like, like the issue of Tales from the Crypt. Absolutely. And, and that was by yeah. design. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's got the it's got the, the tricky angles and the blue and the start and the um really really kind of stark blue and red lighting. And in the first two movies, that looks really good. Looks really, really good. And especially when you start combining that with some of the sequences where it transitions from the live shots into the comic-style drawn artwork. You could have done something like that in this movie. And you know you could have done it because, unless I'm mistaken, Creepshow came out before this. Mm-hmm. So you already had a good template for how to do it. And instead, you just went for this really hammy, ridiculous sequence and the Super Freddy and the Super Freddy cutting into the paper comic book kid with all the paints washing out and the, I told you comic books was bad for you and the hippity-hopping and the bippity-bopping. <laughs> You just, did you just turn into for the fucking dream children. Yeah, he did. He did turn into a little bit of Bill Cosby there. <laughs> just no, that was just me briefly entering a fugue state because I know what's coming two movies from now. Also, uh. all right. Well, there. Well, again. We had not only did we have money, we have a you know a franchise and all that stuff. So we're, as a studio, you keep pushing forward. You give them eight million dollars and a rushed production budget and a billion rewrites by a billion different writers. Seriously, this that script was rewritten not just by like six not six different times, but in some cases by teams of two and three writers at a time. And it's just the most uneven kind of hackneyed thing that they put out in this entire series. And I don't like Freddy's Dead one bit. At least it tried to be a wee bit coherent. But you know what? <laughs> this, this movie bit. didn't even have the fun of being able to look at certain characters and say, hey, look, it's a guy that was in that thing. You know, <laughs> yeah. especially, especially in Dream Warriors, I could actually look at that movie, kind of giggle and go, hey, look, it's Cowboy Curtis. <laughs> Or or in Freddy's Dead, I can go, oh, look, Brecken Meyer, ain't that some shit? Or the fun little cameo by Alice Cooper, and so Come on. on and Roseanne so and Tom Arnold. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, in this... There's no movie, fun, it's you just can't there. Even give me, you can't even give me that joy. There, there is nothing fun that would make me want to watch The Dream Child. Yeah, um, I'm with you. It's it's just kind of there, and it, it's really sad. 
Okay, here's the funny thing, I, and I want to touch on this before we get into too much um, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare. Apparently, there, was a, there were a couple of different ideas for this next installment. One of them written by uh, Peter Jackson. For some reason, I almost said Greg uh, Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. If it were if it were Greg Jackson, Freddie would have just probably just sat there, just kind of lightly poking everybody until they eventually bled to death over the course of ninety minutes. Which would work. You'd eventually bleed out. <laughs> and of course, you'd also be cheerless. Oh, sorry, MMA references, everybody. Moving back on track. <laughs> Apparently, there was a script written by Peter Jackson that I I heard the you know kind of the sell for you know the pitch from the from Never Sleep Again. And it's really interesting. Uh, the basic premise is Freddy is unbelievably weak in the dream world, so much so that teenagers now take drugs to put themselves to sleep so they can go beat on the old man. And he is able to, through sheer dumb luck, kill one of the little punks and starts to regain his power and would have like tried to enter the body of a comatose police officer. I mean, and it just, you know, not a finished product, obviously, in the form that I heard it, but not a bad kind of starting place. And I'll say this, as far as, like, the very basis of Dream Ch- of uh, Freddy's Dead, the notion that Freddy had completely killed everyone in Springwood and had dominated this entire community to that extent, not a bad jumping-off point. Sadly, yeah, sure, you won't make that script, but you'll sure as hell sure as hell, use his time to make his movie about the kid from North and Rudy going for a walk in the woods. Uh, look, I disagree with your stance on that, but fair play. I, I kid, I kid, anybody who really, know, who really knows me knows that there are few... Like only one or two movies that I love more than the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I just felt the need to throw out the to throw out the irony <laughs> that 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 years later. Oh yeah, sure, we definitely want you to make our want you to make our uh, our J.R.R. Tolkien trilogy. But uh, yeah, back in the day, they wouldn't let him touch Freddy. <sighs> and it's sad because I kind of like that idea for a you know for a movie, and I. It is a, a sad case of what could have been. And instead, we got Freddy's Dead. Now, again, I'll give you a very brief plot synopsis. There is one teenager or child left alive in the city of Springwood, Ohio. And Freddy proceeds to use a dream bus to launch him out of the city limits, which apparently he can't cross. And that guy then lures back cannon fodder and Freddy's long-lost daughter, Maggie, who's now kind of a social worker. And he needs her because she's his daughter to let him cross over this, for some reason, mystical barrier that doesn't let him leave the city limits. Very mm-hmm. specific city limits, too. And they get a, they pull him into the real world. We get a final confrontation. He gets blown up, and Freddy's gone. Now, that's basically what happens, everybody. I, I wish I could elaborate and be happy, but no, we get cannon fodder and Freddy blown up with a homemade pipe bomb. That's pretty <laughs> much the long and the short of it here. Oh, this movie. 
Oh, as a brief aside, to everyone listening live, if you are, and again, God bless you, we have 30 minutes of live time left, most of which we're probably going to devote to, again, Freddy's Dead, after which we will be delving into the remake. So, (laughs) that's going to be on the recorded session, it'll wind up being on the overrun, come back... 40 minutes to an hour after we go off the air, and I'll have the whole the whole thing will be reposted on YouTube, or not YouTube, on Facebook, over at the uh, Long Road to Ruin fan page. I'll put it up on my stream. I'm sure Sean and Ben will do the same. So if you want to hear us and the litany of things we have to say about that, that's going to be our over. And there's my Tony Schiavone moment. Sting's here. Whose side is he on? We're out of time. You've all been <laughs> warned in advance. There's your warning. Thank you for listening live, and I hope you listen to the overrun, and I hope you all enjoy it. All right. This movie. I got nothing. I got very little positive I could possibly say about this movie. So, Sean, give me something good before we start ripping this thing to shreds. Give me something good. I got one thing and one thing only. I liked the hearing aid kill. Uh. I liked... Because there are certain okay. there are certain kills in these movies where not only are they kind of inventive, and I'll grant the kills in this movie almost all two of one really divert into Tex Avery territory. Yeah, but they do. But there are certain kills, certain ones. I, I also cited the um, the uh, muscle the tendon puppet kill from Dream Warriors for the same thing. That you watch it, and it really does something about it. just still makes you cringe, even though you know it's just, you know it's just a movie. Maybe it's because of how easily you can picture it. Like somebody, like the terror you really would feel if somebody were to pull select tendons out of your appendages and pull them up and string you up on them and use them to make you walk around. Everything you'd be feeling through that. As a brief aside, hang hang on, very brief aside, there's actually an episode of Criminal Minds where the great Brad Dorif um, turns humans in, turns living people into marionette dolls. Oh, oh. Something about that episode chills me a little bit. Um, and actually, that's that in part because I've never watched a single minute of Criminal Minds. But Brad Dourif, oh, okay, yeah, that I will. Actually Robert England sit down shows and watch. up in one of the episodes too. Nice. He, and again, I'm not guy, saying anything. I'm not saying anything bad about the bad about no, the show. I've never watched it. it. I yeah, I've just but, actually yeah, never it's, watched um, it. Yeah, it's it's cringeworthy. It, it, it right. gets under your skin just but, a little but bit. But getting back to my point. Um, the kill, what happens is, this is a kid who lost his hearing as a result of suffering massive physical abuse. And so, what Freddy does is basically gives him more or less super hearing, and then starts scraping his claw repeatedly on a chalkboard until his head explodes. Something about that, I I don't know, and part of it is the fact that it's executed pretty well, kind of like the exploding head sequence from Big Trouble in Little China. Um, but, oh, it's just, it's, it's cringeworthy. 
otherwise, you know, everything else you have to do, you have to deal with. Just it's more it's more of the same gimmicky crap from Dream Master and from and from um, uh, the Dream Child, except not nearly as well executed. I'm not saying either of those were well executed, but relatively speaking, they're actually somehow worse than those. All right, Ben. Uh, the, uh, hang on. Otherwise, oh, other you got another the thing? Other nice, okay. Yeah, the only other small nice thing I can say. Music by no less than Brian fucking May. Nice. Really? Ah, <laughs> oh, that hurts. <laughs> oh, now I gotta see what else he's done. I'm not saying it's a particularly memorable score or anything, but I'm just saying, you know, fucking Brian May. All right. All right, Ben, you got something good for me? Nope. <laughs> Not a darn thing? <laughs> I have virtually nothing good to say about this movie. I risked getting malware on my computer looking for a website where I could stream this movie without having to pay a single cent for it. You should have asked me. I'd have, I'd have linked you. No. Hindsight is twenty twenty. <laughs> uh, okay. When okay, go ahead. Sorry. I'll try to breeze through. I wrote some things down. A uh, couple of things. Just when Robert England is not mugging his way through this movie like he has never mugged before. In those in between moments, he just looks tired. He just looks kind of tight. And this is the only movie where I can say that. He gives it 110%, like I said, even through the crappiest of material. But, like, this is the one where it seems like, you know, even he was kind of like, really? You're really going to make me do this? Um, the chalkboard thing, we are, Sean, you and I are so going to have to agree to disagree on that one because... It's it's I understand where you could where where you're coming from where you, you you feel that it's a cringeworthy sort of thing. I feel like it was played, you know, uh, Robert England especially like the way he was doing it, it was played way way too much for comedy to be scary or to be creepy or to be effectively, you know, cringeworthy like you were saying. That's just how I feel about it where, you know, Freddie is, you know, you know, gesticulating behind, uh, you know, Carlos, and, and he can't hear him, you know, that part where he's, you know, waving around frantically, and, and then the chalkboard, and he's, like, dry-humping the chalkboard, and it's just like, <laughs> oh, God, what are they doing to you, dude? You deserve better than this. Come on, he um, had a whole handful of pens that he threatened to drop on the floor. Yeah, and like I, and and like I said, that's, that's the worst thing I can say about the movie, is it falls quickly into Tex Avery, Looney Tunes territory, and never fully emerges. And nah. that's someplace where I never want to see Freddy Krueger. Okay, in a leprechaun Let's movie? Forget, okay, that's, as okay, far as that's, Tex that's Avery goes, thing. we got the famous parachute sequence. 
Because every Looney Tunes character has been in the parachute, and then it's either they open it and it doesn't work, or the zip cord falls off, or they open it and it's not a parachute. In this case, it's a parachute, and Freddy just cuts the straps. Congratulations, movie. Congratulations. You actually... Fucking Who Framed Roger Rabbit did a gag better than you. <laughs> at least then we got Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny on the same screen at the same time. Yeah, uh, that's worth a million. <laughs> and well, and, and then and, and, as he's falling, he pushes the bed of nails under him. Oh God! <laughs> and he looks at the camera as he does it, and just shies like, "Well, somebody's got to do it." Oh God. That was one of those, like, Flintstones movies where the pelican, the, the toilet, looks at you and goes, eh, it's a living. It's one of those things, like, you, you know, if you play that scene and you play it one frame at a time, I bet you I can, I can point to you the exact frame in that movie where Robert England feels his soul dying. <laughs> he goes all Ralph Wickham. It's in I, I, there. I, yeah, have to, exactly. I, have to wonder, I have to wonder if this was why he looked so pissed in New Nightmare. If they just told him, you really want to look evil, you really want to look malevolent, I want you to remember the last three movies. Yeah, exactly. What's my motivation? Well, when's the last time you played Freddy Krueger? what we made you do. (laughs) Yeah, remember Rennie. Remember I told you comic books was bad for you. Remember the bed of nails. Remember humping the chalkboard, and oh, don't you dare so much as think about forgetting. Now I'm playing with power. <laughs> you forgot about the power glove. Uh, uh, yes, yes, I got the wrong kind of joy out of watching Freddy maneuver pixelated version of himself snapping a towel at that kid. It was just the dumbest thing ever, but I couldn't help but laugh because it's one of those things... Oh, I was wrong. They did find another place to reference Nightmare 2. But then he drives him into a pit of his father with the tennis racket going, be like me. Uh, Oh, yeah. There's your message right there. Yes, because we should all sympathize with the stoner who builds pipe bombs in his spare time. What the hell are you thinking? Maybe I'm a bit too conservative, but come on. I don't want I don't to sympathize know. with that uh, kid. A movie, I don't know. A movie after this, they kind of thought they'd try to make us briefly sympathize with a child molester. I have my At least brief we can defense be... of that when we get to it. I do have a brief defense. There's your further preview to everyone listening live. There I will a little bit defend that. At least we can be happy that Breckenmeyer would eventually go on to associate himself in movies with a higher class of psychopaths like Tom Green and Road Trip. Or Garfield. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Why not? Sure, Bill Murray is Garfield. Oh, poor oh, Yafet Koto in this. It, he never did get the bonus situation resolved. Was that his real hair? <laughs> I've always wondered that. I, I'm going to assume not, just based on principle. <laughs> I've always wondered. 
Oh, Parker. <laughs> All he okay. wanted was his bonus. <laughs> well, it's a valid desire, but I just... Okay, let me ask you guys. First, okay, two things. Um, one, was it just me or when those um, vaguely sperm-looking uh, dream demons were ah. flying away and cackling? Did one of them sound like Agnes Skinner laughing to any of you guys? Yes. <laughs> I don't remember. I uh, I don't know what like the first time they show them and it's uh, a different scene but they show up and they kind of fly off laughing. One of them laughing. My only thought was Principal Skinner's mother walking along with comic book guy, and she's Say laughing. More, Say more, kill for me. <laughs> that's gonna be that's gonna be the last episode of The Simpsons where they actually become dream demons and they haunt the dreams of. Oh, okay, that was my... Here's the other thing. Was this not just the most anticlimactic way to deal with Freddy Krueger? No, I mean, the remake beat it. Eh, the remake was also not trying to actually like end the franchise and go with Freddy's dead. Yeah, fair enough. I'll give you that one, though. That was... I don't know. I'd put that on par with, you know, some of the others. But I just mean, this is supposed to be, and everyone indicated, this is going to be it. You know, we want to kill Freddy. We're calling it Freddy's Dead. He's getting, Should not this character go out in something of a blaze of glory as opposed to having a somewhat mousy social worker develop world-class throwing skills with various sharp objects to pin him to a wall and then stab him in the chest with a pipe bomb that some delinquent made in his spare time, which is apparently not only solid enough to not explode when lit, but will actually go the whole distance and actually kill Freddy. It's, I mean, it's, also, that it's that equivalent to Killer Croc going, I threw a rock at him. <laughs> a big rock. It's a big Also, a big in this movie, is Freddy, is Freddy Krueger in the real world, is he made out of silly putty? Because it should not be that easy to just punch a pipe bomb through somebody's chest. It really well, he'd already been He'd already been stabbed there, too. which was the, It's like drives a crowbar through his chest. I mean, this ignores the very notion that if he's in the real world, he's mortal and we can kill him with... No, we can sever every major blood vessel. We can stab him through the chest, but we actually have to get a high-grade, well, low-grade in this case, explosive device, and break him up into pieces. I mean, it, it, it's ridiculous. It doesn't make sense. I mean, she breaks his hand, and then he just, like, pushes the fingers back into place. I mean, and you can do that if the if they're dislocated, you can do that. Not if they've been like, no, you go to the hospital for crap like that. Not to mention, they wind up fighting over the glove like it's the freaking ring. The one <laughs> ring, even. Like, man, you don't need the glove. You just mangled the man's hand. Let him try and put it on while he smash his head in with the nail-strewn baseball bat you decided to show off for the 3D cameras and then subsequently forgot about. Yeah, apparently um, Mick Foley was a was a charge at this uh, you know at, at, at this center that they were in. <laughs> oh, but God. on the bright side, apparently we get to watch Johnny Depp get clanged with a frying pan. 
You do, and it's very cathartic. <laughs> oh, you and your Johnny Depp hate. I, I, you know what? Every time, every time I see that, I am like, I am like baby dinosaur. Again. Again. <laughs> yeah, I got a question. What are you on? It looks like an egg, not brain. <laughs> if you're not a Mad Hatter, like not Mad Hatter, not Mad Hatter. You know, if you in that in the defense of that, you know they they were trying to make fun of that. And if you remember, like at that particular time in 1990, that ad was on every everywhere. commercial break oh, of everything. It. I remember it. Everything God, it was everywhere. Uh, well, well so, it, it was it was right up until <laughs> right up until we got the much more hilarious ad that had fucking fucking Johnny Depp being upstaged by Rachel Lee Cook. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and even better, she came back to parody that in an episode of Robot Chicken. <laughs> yes, that was actually. Oh god! But. Oh man! Well, that and. Wait a minute! No, didn't Johnny? No, no, that was this one. Never mind. I'm confusing my movies because they all kind of run together. Mm-hmm. I was also disappointed in the use of Vinagata Devita, mostly because. The whole story of that song is supposed to be a girl who's been buried alive. You're going to tell me you couldn't take the drum solo and do something with that? Instead, it's just cheap stoner comedy? Yeah. If you just need stoner comedy, you have fog hat, smoke on the water, works so much better. That was about the level of creativity you were dealing with in this movie, Matt. Smoke on the water was deep purple. No, deep purple. My apologies. No problem. What am I fog thinking of when I think ride. of Fog Hat, then? Slow Ride, You're thank you. Slow ride. Yeah. Okay. They sound similar. If by similar, you mean not even remotely. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what I mean. I figured. Anyway, I, I don't know. Those for, for some reason, those two songs get confused in my head all the time. I don't know what it... I probably heard them too much when I was doing my formative mm-hmm. years. Which is not right. a, which is not a dispersion on my parents who never in their lives imbibed in various substances. It's just I got stuck listening to a lot of oldies. Can, yeah. it's old, can it I ask make you guys something? <laughs> anyway, can, can I ask you guys something? Sure, okay. go for it. Have either of you actually had a chance to see this movie in 3D? No, no. Like the last ten minutes. Like, do you know anybody that's ever seen that's ever seen that last you know three D sequence at the end? Unless I was you're in, I think, like, that you did. I was in, I think, like fourth or fifth grade when this hit theaters. So yeah, because I, I I haven't either, but I, I I'm you know it's not going to be good, but I am still kind of curious. <laughs> like, was it worth it? Like all the really stupid three D crap they did in the towards the end was it was it worth it? I, I imagine, imagine it would be. <laughs> I just don't think it could have possibly been. Especially the confusion yeah. that apparently theater managers had to go to these screenings and tell everyone, okay, everybody, when Maggie puts on the 3D glasses in the movie, that's when you put on your 3D glasses. <laughs> wow, when you have to explain 3D to somebody... Mm. Yeah, it's 
it, it, this was such a depressing way to theoretically end the franchise. I mean, it, it, it was horrible. There was nothing, again, there's like nothing really good about any of this movie. End the franchise. Oh, come on. Shortly okay, after it this didn't. Movie came I'm out, just saying, got, that was, shortly, here's my thing. That's the, the mindset they out, had. Shortly after this movie came out, we got Jason Goes to Hell, and everybody knows how Jason Goes to Hell ended. Yeah, also true. Yeah, I'm still, I, I, I'm still righteously pissed at Dimension Films for not letting them use. And there go the dogs again. Stop it. Sorry, dogs. I'm still righteously pissed at Dimension for not letting them use Pinhead. It was the best thing that would have been done with that character and anything you did with it for the next ten years. You money-grubbing right. hacks. Mm-hmm. All right, but again, so I'm just again they were it you know again hypothetically end the franchise here, and I just it's a horrible way to do it. It's uh I don't have much of it. I can't think of a single really good thing to say about this. I'm kind of with you, Alice Ben. Alice Cooper. Okay, Alice Cooper. Oh, yeah, yeah. Alice, we, that's about about it. It. we can't forget about Alice Cooper. Oh, no, there is one scene that I kind of liked, and that's when they pull up in Springwood and they go to the town fair. And it's not just because Roseanne and Tom Arnold show up. It's got the, it's got the weird kind of eerie feel to it that... I like in these movies. And it's the only time in this movie that it comes close to capturing it. It's by no means great. But if you're just trying to kind of get a mood piece, you know, and it's, which is ironic because it's so out of touch with the rest of the movie and Freddie mugging the camera. But that, that's the one thing in this movie that I can, that, that and Alice Cooper, it's like, okay, that's, that's all right. That doesn't suck. Um, I'm curious, does, did the fact that she wound up being Freddy's daughter, was that interesting to either of you guys? I mean, as a story device or whatever. (laughs) Ben? Was that? I heard Sean say no, did he just, uh, did you agree with him that Freddy having a kid was just kind of a whatever for you? It was, uh, by that point, you know... With Nightmare on Elm Street 3, we got as much of Freddy's backstory as we needed to, and it was honestly plenty, you know, for a horror movie villain. This movie tried to add more to it, and it was just pointless and superfluous, and it, it didn't it didn't make any difference. And by the time you find out about it, it's you've been, you know, they've already killed everybody off that they were going to kill, and you just don't care. So I I didn't the care. Way, it's, it's, a twist that, it's a twist that is on par with Jason Voorhees trying to impregnate a corpse. <laughs> that was that was at least gloriously bad. This is just depressingly <laughs> bad. I will I, I will say this. It's it's with smirking irony that um, this got a this got a Razzie nomination for worst original song for the song. Why was I born? Freddy's dead. It's a horrible song. <laughs> that's the one that plays at the end. Yes. That's the Mighty one that plays at the yeah. end. during the end credits when they show you the scenes of all the much better Nightmare on Elm Street movies that you should have been watching. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and, oh, and hey, guess what, guys? 
all you people out there who love the City of Angels soundtrack, yeah, guess what? The Goo Goo Dolls did this soundtrack, too. I've never been a fan of the Goo Goo Dolls. (laughs) Well, the sad thing about this movie is that, again, this actually was the end of Nightmare on Elm Street for quite some time, which is kind of a crazy thing to think about. But this came out in 91, and we didn't get another one until... Well, they let Wes Craven do New Nightmare three years later in 1994 to celebrate ten years after the original. And we talked about that movie last year. Or, last year. We talked about that movie last time. But we didn't get Freddy vs. Jason until 2003. I mean, if you go from Freddy's Dead to Freddy vs. Jason and you count Wes Craven's New Nightmare kind of out of chronology as its own little thing. Mm -hmm. Glorious, by the way. Not to cast dispersions on it, but... There was over a decade of, no, of you know, nothing until Freddy vs. Jason. I mean, that was the last image we got, you know, in traditional, in strict canon, was, again, him being blown up, his head coming out of his mouth three or four times, and then dream demons laughing and then swimming away to find another egg. And, and it is the equivalent to, let us never speak of the, let us never speak of the shortcut again, well, one one other thing, I, uh, technically, the last image you see of Freddy in that movie is that last scene in the end credits where they rightly show the scene immediately after the rebirth in Elm Street 4, which is one of the be- most badass images of Freddy Krueger that they've ever done. So they at least knew which better movie to, you know, to end on. That's true. We do get Freddy and then the R.I.P. letters over him when- uh. But, again, 2003, we did get Freddy vs. Jason, which we talked about last time as gloriously fun schlock mm-hmm. that downplayed Freddy and had way too much Jason and a few too many stoners and Kelly Rowland surviving way too long. But, well, then we get several seven years after that we get uh, Michael fucking Bay. That miserable... Uh, I'm not going to rant on Michael Bay. I've done it too many times. I don't need to do it again. But his production company, Platinum Dunes, which... Heaven help us. Have we not learned that this man and this production company cannot make a decent movie? I looked up every movie Platinum Dunes has done the other day because I ranted on it. And I discovered one, precisely one, that did not suck. And that's the best thing I can say about it. What? Which, which, which one, in your opinion, was that? Um, it's called Horseman. It stars Dennis Quaid. I saw it uh, kind of on ac- not on accident, but just kind of browsing through Netflix one day. Um, I, I, and, will say, I will say this, although I know a lot of people will disagree with me on it, and I'm not saying that it's better than the original. Um, I haven't seen Horseman, although now I'll actually take your recommendation and probably look it up. Um, I'm one of those rare people you find that actually liked the 2003 Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. Is that just because you like looking at Jessica Biel? No, actually. I actually genuinely 
I genuinely liked it. I won't okay. say it's I won't say it's better or more enjoyable than the Toby Hooper original, but I don't care much I for the Toby it. Hooper original. I don't like that whole franchise. I commit here it is everybody. All horror fans out there, if you want to throw stones at me, I don't like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies. None of the ones that I have seen. Where's my stone? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's just me. Feel free to disagree. That's where I stand. You throw yours first. I'm going to go find a big rock. (laughs) I know I'm kind of on an island here, and I don't ask everyone to agree. I don't debate it with people necessarily. I don't care for them. That's all. Though I will say, R. Lee Emery, as the... uh, uh, State Trooper, what have you, and the 03 remake was pretty sweet. But yeah, yeah, he he really did make that movie considerably more enjoyable for his presence in it. But but again, like, okay, okay, here's my point with all of this. You got that, you got the 2003 remake, and then you got a couple of, uh, didn't they do the last one, like in 09, Texas Chainsaw, or just whatever it was, Chainsaw, or what have you? Oh, God. Are, if you're referring to that thing that's on Netflix for instant watching. I believe I am, yes. They also did the Friday the 13th remake wherein Jason is a monumentally gifted engineer and one of the mole people. And apparently and apparently moves like an NFL linebacker. Uh, and then for some reason we all everyone decided, "Hey, this guy gets Freddy too." It wouldn't shock me if Platinum Dunes is somehow in discussion for uh, the next Hellraiser to one degree or another. Just because, why not? Hey, Michael Bay, you've screwed up the childhood of everyone from the 80s. How about you take all the horror movies and screw those up too? You frickin' hack. Anyway, we get the remake, which comes out in 2010. And I was excited for... I wish I could go back and find myself and say, no, you poor, stupid bastard. Don't spend your money. Don't spend your money on this. I had that moment, actually, in the theater. I paid to go see this in in theaters. So I contributed. I apologize wholeheartedly. I I was lucky enough that I paid to see it at a drive-in, so I, at least after I sat through this, got the apology of getting to watch Kick-Ass for a second time. I was sitting there in the theater, I watched the previews, I was ready to go, and they are doing the thing in the beginning where everyone associated with it gets their logo, and Platinum Dunes came across the screen, and somewhere inside of me, a little something died. All of a sudden, I got an inkling, like, oh, crap. Oh, all right, hang on, before we go, that's how you, um, Ben, did you pay to see this movie? The 2010 nope. remake? No, I didn't. <laughs> you, sir, are wiser than us. Yeah. I wanted to, actually. I actually did want to see it in the theater. It just uh, kind of missed, I missed the boat on it. I'm glad I did. <laughs> I'm sure your 750 would was better spent elsewhere. No, my friend. Uh, I live in New York City. It would have been much more than that. Uh, <laughs> all right. All right. For those of you who haven't seen it, this is a pretty... It's a remake, okay? This is not a re This is pretty straightforward. Yeah. So 
So, I was excited. I still, <laughs> they, if you, you know, Robert England's getting up there in age in 2010. Not able to maybe physically do all the things you expect of Freddy. So, you got to cast somebody else. They got probably the best guy they could have in the form of Jackie Earl Haley. Oh, they nailed it. Yeah. Who was coming off of a couple of performances specifically that made you go, yes, he could be Freddy Krueger. One was, I believe, a film called uh, The Little Children, something to that effect. Got him an Oscar nomination, actually. I mean, and he had just done Watchmen, where he was the shining star of that movie. Is his? Oh gosh! Oh, oh yeah! Easily, easily the best part of that. With a minor shout out to Jeffrey Dean Morgan as uh, the comedian, but so you've got the best guy possible. They announced he was going to be Freddy, and nobody freaked out. The consensus seemed to be, if you've got to get someone other than Robert England, this is it. This is kind of the fantasy cast. And uh, there are scenes in this movie where he reminds everyone that Freddy is freaking terrifying when he wants to be. Oh, yeah. I'll I'll give you my favorite scene, and then we can move on from there. But that whole movie... I have two scenes that I really like, but one stands alone as my favorite, and that is, uh, I forget the character's name, though I will look it up since I'm on this, um, Jesse is uh, arrested for Chris's murder, because how could, and no one else was in the room, and he, again, he's arrested, and he's in jail, and falls asleep, and Freddy proceeds to lure him out of his cell, down into the boiler room, kills him violently, and the guy's cellmate freaks out because his cellmate now has blood gushing from wounds in his chest, and we cut back to this poor kid hanging upside down, with Freddy staring him in the face, going, you know, the human brain can survive without blood for five minutes. That leaves us four minutes to play. Oh, hell yes. Hell yes. Mm. I'm sorry, that is designed and effectively scares the crap out of you. Totally. And everything, and this movie gives you moments. Just moments, mind you. You get moments Mm -hmm. when you think, this could have been awesome. And then everything else just kind of brings it down. That was so, a, that was a true Freddy moment. Oh, I yeah. loved it. it. It was awesome. I was sitting in the theater and I rejoiced because I went, "Yes, Freddy, there you are. You're not putting on shades or pushing a bed of nails under someone. No, there's finally Freddy." You know what? I uh, I rode such a roller coaster when it came to this movie. I, I was, you know, we, we refer to Simpsons moments so often. I was literally like Homer Simpson with every little piece of news going, that's good, that's bad, that's good, that's bad. Okay, they announced they're going to remake A Nightmare on Elm Street. At, granted, at this point, this was following a string of people making really horrible, horrible remakes of classic horror movies. And 
my heart just sank that they were going after my all-time favorite horror flick. But then, then they revealed who was playing who was playing Freddy, and they revealed that it was Jackie Earl Haley. And this was not long after I after I had seen Watchmen. Okay, that intrigued me. I thought, okay, suddenly this seems like against what past experience tells me the odds should be, this could be good. Then I saw the first production stills of Jackie in the new makeup and the costume, which apparently they made more of an effort in this one to actually model the skin damage even better on actual burn victims. Yeah. And to do that even even more closely, even they did back in the earliest days of the movie. Okay, then all of a sudden I was getting really psyched for this. And I found out that, number one, Michael Bay was producing it. Okay, that's not as bad as Michael Bay directing, (laughs) but it's pretty damn close. Then I remembered, okay, for a second, because he was also in charge of of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake, which I liked. Okay, I may regret this, benefit of a doubt. You're not directing it, you're just producing it, Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. Okay, I'm cautiously optimistic now, but I'm still optimistic. I found out it was being directed by somebody who had never made a movie before. No, (laughs) prior to this, he was a music video director. Gulp. Okay, then I was much less enthusiastic. I thought, okay, um, you know, okay, maybe it'll be good. Maybe it'll surprise me. I mean, after all, Wes Craven wasn't exactly Steven Spielberg when he made the first one. (laughs) Then, the trailer. In the moment which at first actually had me kind of enthusiastic because, unlike in the previous movies, it actually depicted the unruly mob of Elm Street parents chasing a not-yet-made-up Jackie Earl Haley through a junkyard and trapping him in a building. And then came the moment when the bastard child of a hundred maniacs seemingly as he was pissing himself in fear moaned I didn't do anything oh hell no oh this is this is where you went you 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 know no, 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 no. Tell me you are not going to Rob Zombie Michael Myers this. Tell me you are not going to take the most malevolent, monstrous, unrepentant of all killers, pure evil himself, and try to turn this into a tale of revenge for him being wrongly accused. Tell me you are not God damn 
motherfucking mother, father, and funny uncle of all fucks doing this. And lo and behold, the movie actually managed <laughs> to do something worse. They actually, number one, bait and switched it. Oh, yeah, they made it look like he was wrongly accused. But no, the big twist later was that, as it turned out, no, he was just getting revenge on the kids for rightfully telling on him because, unlike the restraint that Wes Craven had the decency to show in the original, oh, no, this movie just went whole hog, and instead of making him a child murderer, they made him a kid toucher. And he was going after kids who completely improbably managed to completely forget that they were ever touched in their no-no places by the creepy man in the hat and the Christmas sweater. Folks, let me make something abundantly clear to you, because I hope to never hear one of you utter this single stupid blanket complaint of, Hollywood makes anymore is remakes. Nobody has any original ideas anymore. No, don't throw that at me. Oh, original ideas. Oh, you mean like uh, Gone with the Wind? Oh, wait, that was based on a novel. Or, or like The Godfather? Oh, wait, no, no, no. Two out of those three movies based on novels. The good ones. Okay, or like uh, uh, Clockwork? Oh, no, no, novel. The Shire? No, novel. The Matrix on a graphic novel and several various anime, including Ghost in the Shell. Uh, or, or, oh, oh, like Star Wars. Oh, no, 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 no. That's Joseph Campbell and the Monomyth, you know, which has been told numerous Among times. Among other things. Through, through, throughout centuries, by culture after culture after culture. Oh, Willow, which is basically kind of a bizarre, weird, embarrassing love child of the Monomyth and Star Wars. No, remakes can be good. They can be good if you have somebody who is faithful to and understands what makes the original work and actually manages to put their own spin on it. That's why I want this to text Chainsaw Massacre work. That's why the recent remake of Carrie, against all my expectations, actually was pretty fucking good. That is what... That is why... The Evil Dead remake. I shouldn't say remake, I should say kind of weird remake slash extension slash reboot. The new one. <laughs> yeah. Was actually excellent. Or you can take a look at the Star Wars Expanded Universe. Or the most recent two Star Trek movies. The first slightly more so than the second, but you get my idea. It can be done. Being a remake does not make a movie bad. If you understand what people loved about the first one, and you can find a way to modernize it and maybe do things that the first one, one maybe would have been better for doing but couldn't have. Okay, give it a try. But be careful. In this case, this movie was made by people who entirely missed the goddamn motherfucking point, which was that to bring things full circle back to where we started this whole combined now oh, over four hours of podcasting, 
you had a bunch of people who had no money to spend, but they had a great idea. They had a unique idea, a direction nobody had ever taken horror before that was more cerebral than anything anybody up to that point had ever done that really got to the very real depths of fear and what made the human mind tell the human body, evacuate bladder now. And they did it all also with ingenious, innovative, practical effects. They did it for real. They cast an unknown, act, an unknown, seemingly risky, risky choice as an actor to play the villain, and he made it an icon. They took seemingly cheap effects and actually made them mesmerizing to watch. This movie instead soaks absolutely everything in CGI, subs out protagonists that we actually care about in terms of whether or not they survive, and give us bland as all fuck, boring as mayonnaise splattered on dry white paint that's left to, that's left to sit out on grass that we're now watching grow, Rooney fucking Mara as Nancy, taking the place of the great, sympathetic, investing Heather Langenkamp. And you instead just made a modern schlock piece with the idea that more expensive and more computerized is better. When the truth is, the only thing about this movie, the only thing that holds up to the original. Okay, three things actually. Number one, the sequence Ben mentioned. That was fucking badass. That was a Freddy moment. Number two... I actually like the sequence in the drugstore where they start taking micro-naps, and as the lights flicker, you can see where it starts transitioning between, between Freddy's world and the real world. I like that. I'm with you. And finally, and God love him, I wish he would get a chance to take this role on again with a proper director and writers. Hell, with, say, Wes Craven even... Jackie Earl Haley knocked the ball out of the fucking zip code as Freddy Krueger. He put his own spin on it. He didn't, he didn't mug. He maybe didn't act through the makeup quite as well as Robert did, but he made it menacing in his own way. You can't fault him for the fact that he was given a shit script to work with, whose only objective seemed to be eh, working a couple a couple recognizable lines from the other movies here and there when you can. Context. Fuck context. Fuck it right in his stupid ear. One of the only nice things I can say about this, and you know what? I say it not because I'm angry that they even tried. I say it because I'm angry because it could have been so much more than this. This could have been Carrie. This could have been Evil Dead. This could have, well, to a lesser extent, even been Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Instead, it was just something that makes me want to go hug my copies of the first movie in Wes Craven's new Nightmare. All right. I don't disagree with most of what you said. I, I have nothing but contempt for Rooney Mara's performance in this movie. Not a darn thing other than that. She's flat-faced. She shows up just for a paycheck. You can almost see the boredom behind her eyes as everything's going on. Nobody whose family owns the fucking New York Giants should be showing up for just a paycheck. I don't disagree. 
Um, I will say, briefly in defense of uh, Jackie Earl Haley having a harder time with the makeup, that there was a fair amount of CGI that actually went into his face. Uh, that's, just, that's true. I'll give you that Just one. to continue your point about, oh, well, CGI, no. You didn't need it. It was. It absolutely was not necessary. Yeah. All right, uh, Ben, you got anything? Uh, g- uh, give me like if you've got a positive, and then uh, um, some of your issues. <laughs> yeah, I got a couple of things. I, I kind of apologize for interrupting uh, Sean's rant, but uh, I was very close to a rant of my own just then, and I will get into it in just a second. Um, I ha- it's not. It, it's probably not the one you might think it is. To get a couple of things out of the way. Um, yeah, Jagger O'Haley tried his best in this remake. This movie was going to be the mountain that he dies on, uh, but he couldn't save it. Um, he did absolutely the best he could with what he had. I, I honestly wish he was... He, he he elevated some crappy material, and I wish that he had a better movie to, uh, to be Freddy Krueger in, and I think he would have been phenomenal because... He, you know, he had some of the shining moments of uh, of good in this movie. Uh, yeah, I've taken a couple, couple of things that uh, nobody quite mentioned yet. Um, I actually, immediately after this movie is o- was over, after I finished watching it, I immediately nicknamed it a jump scare on Elm Street. Oh, <laughs> God. Yeah. That's true. Hot. Oh. I got. I started getting pissed off by the number of jump scares in this movie. They were the first one or two were semi-effective. After that, it's just you're beating a dead horse, and then you've reanimated the horse's beaten corpse, and then you beat it to death again. Uh, I hated that. Um, it seemed to me with this movie. That any time, and it's really frustrating in this way, any time this movie tried doing its own thing, any time it tried to introduce something new and innovative that had never been done in an Elm Street movie before, like the micro-naps, like the, uh, the part that I think we all liked a lot that was probably the best part of the movie that, you know, we have this many minutes to play, uh, the back and forth shifting between dreams and 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 waking you know waking world. Anytime it tried to do new and interesting things like that, it excelled. It was really good and really interesting. And you wish that they had spent more time on things like that. But anytime this movie tried to homage, and I wish you could see me right now, and I wish I had both hands free so I could do some big sarcastic air quotes, homage to the original uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and, and the original series, it failed, and it failed hard. Oh. My favorite scene my favorite scene in the original, and we talked about this last time, was the scene where, where Freddy pushes his way through the wall. That was done with a hollow wall and latex. They, ma- they managed to make the CGI equivalent of that in 2010 look so much worse. Ooh, spooky wallpaper. creating. <laughs> It was infuriating. Anytime, you know, they tried to insert like a half-assed pun, you know, that Freddie makes. And that is one thing I'll say. Jackie O'Haley can't deliver puns like Robert England. Sorry. That's the one thing that, that, 
you know, Robert England has this innate ability that even when you think his puns suck, you still like he still delivers them in an endearing way. Um, this was not that. Uh, the ending of this freaking movie, not that, not like the last ten seconds. I mean, the way that they kill Freddy. This is the fourth time in the Elm Street franchise that they kill Freddy by pulling him out of a dream into the real world and killing him. It's arguably also the worst time that they do it because I honestly think it's worse than the way they killed him and Freddy's dead, and that's saying something. That uh. is saying a lot. I hated that. Um, yeah, Rooney Mara was terrible in this movie, and it's made all the worse by the fact that she took every opportunity after this movie was done to shit talk, you know, it and everybody in it when, you know, she was by far the worst thing about it. Uh, you by know, far. she got an Oscar she got an Oscar nomination and suddenly, you know, she was too good for this movie. Um, she didn't deserve the nomination either. <laughs> well, no, there you go. She didn't. Like there anybody that move, the American version of Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is good if you haven't seen the original. I've seen the and original. I like, and I like Daniel Craig. Let me say that. I like Daniel Craig. That movie, it was a pale imitation. But Much yeah, like uh, every American remake of a Swedish movie, because Americans don't have the same sensibilities, translate as well as you'd think it would. Are you alluding to Let the Right One In? Because I'm just wondering. I am. <laughs> there you go. Okay. <laughs> hey, I got one. Yeah, Rui Mara was... Insomnia, I don't, too, I, if you want another one. Yeah. Okay. I I don't like Rooney Mara as an actress, and that pains me to say as a Nightmare on Elm Street fan and also as a Giants fan. Um <laughs> There's one other thing, and this is where I'm going to go head-to-head with Sean on this. The um, Sean's glorious rant earlier. It's something that pissed me off greatly about when the first Elm Street trailer came out. It's something that pisses me off about a lot of things, a lot of instances where this happens in fiction in general. I'd like to get this out real quick because, once again, it's one of those things where it's the only time I may have a forum for it. Okay. Freddy, or in the movie, his, you know, he in his line in the movie as he's yelling at these parents about to kill him is, uh, you know, what do you think I did? I didn't do it. I didn't believe for a second that 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 was meant to imply that he was going to be portrayed as innocent. And this is a thing in fiction that really bothers me when people do that. It's when somebody says something in story and it is taken as, you know, it is what it is. And what I saw in that trailer was you have a cornered villain who is about to be killed by being burned to death in a building. And he's doing what any good cornered villain would do, and that is try to talk his way out of it. That does not necessarily mean that when he says he didn't do it, that he really didn't do it. And this yeah, happens a you, lot. But you got to remember, this also came out on the heels of, uh, of, again, of Rob Zombie's Halloween, in which he absolutely did try to go and make Michael Myers sympathetic. 
Okay, uh, but you understand, yeah. what I'm, you, you understand what I'm getting at, though? Like, I just wanted to, this is something that I, I had to get off my chest because it's happened in a couple of other things. It's happened, you know, when a character implies something in a story and somebody, and, and I'm not saying that this is necessarily what you've done, but I've seen it done before, and I've seen it done with this trailer before for the Dungeon remake. When somebody implies something in character, in movie, and, and the audience just takes it at face value just because a character says it, it happened, there's a couple other examples, it happened in Thor when it was thrown out there that the Asgardians may be aliens and not gods, but it was never said for sure one way or another, and everybody just assumed that it was true because somebody said it. I never believed that. It was just implied by a character who may or may not have known what they were talking about. It was the same thing happened in, like, the original Night of the Living Dead. It was implied that the zombie apocalypse was caused by a meteor that fell to Earth. It was never confirmed. It was only it was only implied by a character. Uh, you know, there's there's a couple other things that are probably escaping me right now, but it's something that bugs the hell out of me when people do it, and it just, I you know, it's it, it happens a lot. Even even if that was the case, that one moment being in the trailer, it still made Freddy so much less. Threatening. It, it it took so much of the air out of what I saw in those other publicity stills because Robert England just never, never gave that off. Well, that, hang on. I, there's a couple of things different here. First of all, uh, Robert England's character was again. They implied that he was a molester. They made out they you know they say to you know he kills people the other stuff was implied with the ver- the way they took this they actually made him a strict pedophile and in that in that case then everything that was done in that sequence is actually true to what any pedophile does under those circumstances so uh, it's a case of the direction they took it being more realistic and having the character have a slightly different twist on it in this fair particular point, instance. But, fair point, and I get what you're saying. Not, I absolutely do. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I'm still not crazy that they that they even went there at all and even dared and even dared to imply it even in the vaguest way that well, don't get it, me wrong. It, yeah. No, I guess they just, just just to even to even imply that in the vaguest way that that he was bawling that uh, it, it still really it still really rubbed me the wrong the wrong way and I'll admit that's one of my more that's one of the things about the movie that I'm a little more ultimately forgiving about uh, after having actually seen it which is sad because that was the part that first pissed me off and ended up being the thing that I was the least angry about. Yeah. Okay, Ben, Don't get me wrong. Point. Yeah, the the whole, you know, the whole is he, did he really do what they're accusing him of doing or not, you know, subplot that kind of really ultimately went nowhere. It was a huge, huge waste of time. Don't get me wrong. It was a long way to go for a really bullshit red herring that I personally, I don't know about anybody else, but I personally never believed it in the first place. Yeah. Um, 
So there's that. It's just that, you know, I don't know. I I just had a personal annoyance for the way people reacted to that trailer and hearing people go on about, like, you know, you know, oh, this movie is going to portray Freddie as being innocent and being sympathetic. I'm like, why would you assume that? Just because, you know, just because the guy is a mob. He's not going to gleefully shout out, guess what I did? Yeah, exactly. That's what I had, you know, that's what I was faced with up until this movie came out. So it's just something that really, really bothered me for a long time. Yeah, context is... <laughs> in trailers, context gets lost a lot of the time. I, I struggle with that frequently. I'm going to very, very briefly potentially defend the whole did-he-didn't-he aspect, in as much as... And this is a fault of both the writing and the directing. When it's... The questions that are brought up about, well, did he actually, are brought up by the teenagers. And I get the impression that it's more they, not necessarily this way, but these characters, I would assume, desperately don't want to have been the victim of that. That's, and you're now, this is like denial for any traumatic event. And the problem becomes not so much that these, you know, the kids are potentially, the teenagers are in denial about being abused as children. It's that that's the only perspective we as the viewing audience get, essentially. Mm-hmm which leads us to question, well, did he or didn't he? I think you, you, you throw in maybe a scene where a couple of the parents get together and just briefly discuss the evidence they had, have a flashback, something that, put, that you know, lets you understand maybe that, no, this is just denial on their part and they're stupidly and emotionally reacting to horrible, tragic news and traumatic events that happened to them. It's not. It's the fault of everyone associated with production, direction, and writing that we don't get that as audience members. I had to really intellectualize that whole bit to figure out what the heck happened. And I was giving them a credit of, well, they didn't just throw in a red herring to throw in a red herring, which is probably a, which is probably my bad. You know but, what? In, in my opinion, the movie is a lot like a four one one mania commenter. Oh jeez. It, it, it likes to throw out terribly advanced and daring con- and daring concepts, but ultimately it ends up being used repeatedly out of con out of context. And instead of make and instead of just you know actually making them look smart, it just makes them look kind of desperate and like they really do have no idea what they're doing. Uh, and. I'm kind of with Ben in the sense that the most aggravating thing about this movie was that every now and then it was good. And you just couldn't help but wonder what might have been. I mean, my least favorite sequence in this entire movie is the sequence where Chris is killed by being thrown violently around the room. Oh, There's a couple of... Here's a fun exercise for everybody, and this is going to be the last point that I have before we wrap up and do plugs. As we're, we're, we're down to our last half hour, and I'd rather not push our luck. But if you compare what happens in the original, now, in the original, they created a rotating room uh, for that effect, and they just rotated it and filmed it, and 
that and they did I think they did the same thing in Wes Craven's New Nightmare. And if you haven't seen these movies and you want to know the effect of a rotating room, if you have seen Inception, the hallway scene with Joseph Gordon Levitt and one of the dream apparitions that's trying to kill him, as they're falling in the in the hotel the other guys are falling, but the room starts the hallway spins. And they work through that. That's the same effect. They you know, again Christopher Nolan built a spinning room and that's how they shot that. That's the effect. Fully practical effect. Yeah. They built a spinning room, shot this poor girl being thrown around it, and then had blood spat, then, you know, had the blood come out and everything. And to this day, it's a brutal depiction of violent death. In the remake, she's thrown around with CGI and wires and a whole lot of shaky cam and jump cuts. One of these things is effective. One of them is laughable. Uh, all right, and and again, it's just sad because they it could have been so good. The moments of well, that's, brilliance that's, in that that's, movie that's are good. Other, that's one of the other downfalls of having a damn music video director do this movie. Wes had the patience to linger on long shots and oh, let them really establish what they were meant to. Yeah. On the other hand, you're now letting this movie be handled by somebody who has to try to cram as many shots as possible into a three or four minute clip who just doesn't have that same appreciation that someone like uh, a James Wan or a Ridley Scott or a Wes Craven has or an Alfred or an Alfred Hitchcock were to go way back for just letting the camera linger. Just leave it there for a while. Let things get a little bit uncomfortable. Believe me, you'll be glad you did. Yeah. Oh, it's... no. We, we must shoot all of the angles. All of the angles. Don't Here's the a thought. <laughs> Even if you shoot all the angles, you don't have to edit all of the angles in. Yeah, which is a whole other kettle of fish. But, okay, last bit on this, and then we're going to wrap up. Apparently, as with most of these things, there's rumors of potentially another one. No! We're all we're uniformly going to say no. This is a bad idea. No, no. Get Jackie Earl Haley in the wit sack. Jackie, it's not worth it. Don't gamble your career away. All right, that's kind of the the expected response. Uh, kind of sad. I mean, if they were going to do, if I was to do this, I would see if I could get James Wan to direct it, and then I'd get Jack Earl Haley back and see what we can do with people who know what the hell they're doing. There you go. All Peter right. Jackson. I'd take that. <laughs> Honestly. I would, the guy makes a decent be... horror movie. Mm-hmm. Made Dead Alive. Yeah. <laughs> the scene where he puts the lawnmower up. It's still awesome. I would I I would I would say Guillermo del Toro, but goddamn it, not until he makes Hellboy three. That's true. I, you know, I wholeheartedly agree. I'd like it. I'm still pissed he couldn't get at the Mountains of Madness going. But I am yeah. a hardcore Lovecraftian, so there's my perspective. Yeah. All right, that's gonna wrap us up here. Uh, real briefly, guys, I want your overall thoughts on the franchise as a whole. Uh, just to kind of close us out here, and then we'll go into plugs. So, Sean, the entirety of the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise from 1986 to, or whenever it was released, I forget the exact year. 
early 80s, at the very least, at all the way to 2010. You know, what's your takeaway from the whole franchise? At its very best, it's mind-bending, focused, thoughtful ingenuity when it's in the right hands. At its, at its very worst, it tends to be a series of great ideas executed excruciatingly badly combined with handing the reins over to people who just miss all of the points of what makes the move of what makes these movies good when they're good. All right, Ben, overall thoughts on the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise? Um, I think Sean said it said it best. All I'll add to that is that, you know, this is this is something that I grew up on. It's a huge influence on uh, me, you know, creatively in terms of what scares me, in terms of what I like to try to, you know, use to scare people in, in my own work. Um, you know, it, it made me, it got me to fall in love with slash flicks, with, you know, practical effects, with uh, hammy dialogue, puns, um, and Heather Lancap. So, <laughs> there you go. Yep. All right. Sean, what do you got to plug? All right. Well, first off, some thanks to throw out there. Thank you, Ben, for joining us for these two episodes. It, it has been a distinct pleasure having you on. You've been a great guest. I was looking forward to this for months before we even got to it, and it was every bit as much fun as I thought it would be. Uh, you, you also did an absolutely fantastic job on the title card and on a couple of absolutely wonderful sketchbook satires Saturday, just kind of uh, extemporaneous black and white sketches of Freddy. Um, if folks, if you've never checked out Ben's work, uh, if anything, if anything else, if absolutely nothing else, if you don't go check out his website and his, his comic and everything else that he does, uh, go check out the Long Road to Ruin Facebook page and look through our photos and see some of the title cards he's done, including the one for our. Upcoming look at the Michael Bay Transformers trilogy, which we're doing two weeks from now, when the main man, the mandated, frankly mortified reporter, the uh, no-pants man from the Florida no-pants clan, returns to his throne. Um, we'll be putting that up on the website very short, very shortly. Um, but, yeah, Ben, you added a tremendous deal to this. And this just wouldn't have been as much fun without you. Uh, Robert, thank you as we kind of close things out for a great, great three months on the show that I've enjoyed as much as any run in the almost two years that we've been doing this. Uh, you've been a great co-host. You had some big, big shoes to step into. But you made every single show fun. Uh, we get to take on three tremendous franchises, and I've loved every minute of it. As for my own plugs, uh, as I already mentioned, two weeks from tonight, myself, Mark Rodelich, and we are going to be looking at uh, three movies that are very, very, very hard to defend right as we're on the cusp of a fourth one. It's me, it's Mark, it's the Michael Bay Transformers saga. Before that, though, Tomorrow night, tune in at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, right here, same RIB, same RIB time, same RIB station. 
for myself, for myself, Mark, and the second episode of our Orange is the New Black Season 2 recap, Litchfield Live. We're going to be taking a look at episodes 4 through 6 of the 13-episode new season. Please don't miss that. Uh, otherwise, really, I've got nothing myself to plug. Um, oh, one last thanks to throw out there. Uh, thank you, as always, to... Allison Pregler, who so often throughout these throughout these shows as I'm doing my prep, is a good person to bounce ideas off of since we're both kind of night owls. Um, always willing to listen to my thoughts on especially these various horror franchises, as that's really kind of her cup of tea. So, uh, Allison, should you ever get a chance to hear this, thank you again, as always, for the great conversation, the insights, and the encouragement. And... Other than that, I'll just uh, throw it right back to you guys. All right, Ben, what do you got to plug? Where can people find you? Okay, um, plugs. I once again, I write, draw uh, a an independent self-published comic called Soul Exodus. You can find that for purchase, for viewing, for web comics, for fun, for sooth, for Frodo uh, on. My website, soulexo.com, uh, on, on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash soulexo. You can catch me and uh, uh, Sean mentioned Sketchbook Saturday. I do it every Saturday. I try to do at least two or three per Saturday. Uh, I made it a point to do Freddy ones for, you know, for the show. But uh, I'll do whatever comes to mind, and that's on my Twitter, my Twitter page, uh, Twitter at Soul Exo Comic. Um, to plug a couple of friends of mine, uh, madeafail.net, it's a great bunch of people, a bunch of uh, like-minded, geek-minded friends. They've been very good to me. I'd like to think I've been very good to them. Uh, they'll be celebrating their sixth anniversary very soon, and I, unless plans change, I should be on their sixth anniversary podcast as well. I got something special lined up for that too. So check out madeafail.net for them uh, and all of uh, the various uh, geek-centric stuff they produce. Uh, Shout-outs to Louis Lovehog, a.k.a. Linkara, who just launched his new website, atopthefourthwall.com. I am working with him on a little comic called Revolution of the Mask that should be should be nearing the light of day very soon, I hope. Uh, keep checking his website and keep checking mine for updates, for information about when that may come to be. Uh, a very, very long shout-out because I've got, uh, I think I'm done with conventions for the, rest, for the rest of the year until the fall. Thank God, because I'm broke. Uh, New York Comic Con. I do New York Comic Con every single year uh, at the Javits Center in New York City. If you happen to be in the New York City area on October 9th through the 12th and you love comics or you love movies or you love anything related to geek or popular culture, it's a good time. You should check it out if there's still tickets available, which there may not be, but give it a try. Uh, Check out their website for more information. It's uh, nycomiccon.com. Lastly, um, most certainly not least, Long Road to Ruin. Uh, I will continue to draw title cards for Long Road to Ruin. I just finished, as Sean mentioned, the one for Transformers, uh, wherein Mark and Sean are both strangling Shia LaBeouf. You're welcome, guys. <laughs> um, I get, 
I get to be Optimus Prime. Yeah. If, uh, I know you guys are planning on doing uh, Batman the Animated Series. I am going to be all over that very soon. Uh, this is one of the other instances wherein I am going to attempt to follow Genius again. I just procured a copy of uh, Mad Love drawn by Bruce Tim, who is a huge influence on me and my artwork. And I'll be studying that, and hopefully you'll like what I come up with uh, for that very soon. And that's all I got. All right. I'd like to echo Sean's comments. It's been nice having you here. You've been a great help. You've added a great deal to the to the couple of episodes you've been on, uh, and you do just phenomenal work with the title cards. I have seen Sean and Mark strangling Shia LaBeouf, and I just want to say it could have been Mark Wahlberg, and I would have been just a little <laughs> bit happier. Uh, we we only punish those who have already done ill. Yeah, Mark Wahlberg, Mark Wahlberg. was in The Departed, so I I kind of I kind of give him a pass. Uh, okay, I, I agree. That's also. Be- Incidentally, I cannot think about Mark Wahlberg without saying his, hearing his last name done in the Futurama President Nixon voice. <laughs> so there, there's, now I have implanted that idea into all of your brains, those of you who know what I'm talking about. All right, my quick plugs. Uh, I host the 411 Ground and Pound radio show every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's a look at the wide, wacky world of mixed martial arts. If you're a fan of the sport, tune in. Give us a listen. You can also find that in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com every Monday. Uh, actually, this week, this Saturday, special guest interview uh, set up by Sean Comer. I've got, at the very least, uh, that I know of, Brandon Jones, who runs uh, Siam Fighting Championship. Is that what it's called? I don't want to botch uh, the name uh, of Siam Fight Productions. Siam Fight Productions out of Arizona. Yep. Uh, he runs a gym there too, yes. Uh, well, he doesn't. He doesn't run it. We. Well, I may talk to the gym owner and see if he'll be joining him. Um, he he co-runs Siam Fight Productions alongside Sitan Muay Thai owner and operator uh, Tiago Lazaredo. Okay. Um, sorry, I just took a swig of Pepsi, so I'm sorry if that came out kind of garbled. Tiago Lazaredo, and. They're going to be on to talk about the intricacies of Muay Thai, uh, how pure Muay Thai really differs from the fighting form as it's applied in MMA, and also to throw out some plugs for the second annual Siam Cup uh, Junior Muay Thai Grand Prix, which is right. going on right now and has an event coming up July 12th, uh, July 12th on Go Fight Live iPay-Per-View. All right, so yeah, we'll have an interview with them up, first part of the show, then the second part will be a quick double preview of the upcoming two UFC Fight Night card. One features Mark Hart and James the Tuna, the other Cub Swanson and Jeremy Stevens. There's a Neil Magny sighting, so don't be too excited. You will make room for the Tuna. <laughs> All right, so be on the lookout for that. My own podcast, Everyone Loves a Bad Guy, goes live every Friday, more or less, at 9 p.m. Eastern here on the Radlich and Broadcasting Network. I took a week off last week. Insomnia plus renovation downstairs. I just wasn't up to it. And I figured that if I don't feel up to it, I'd rather take a week off than have a crappy show. But this week, I'm going to be back. I'm going to be in full swing. And as was my plan last week, I want to tackle villains who do a lot of time traveling. 
So it's going to be a lot of fun. I think Jesse Starcher is going to join me. Those, all my shows are calling unless I otherwise specify. So if you've got thoughts, feel free. I give out the number at the start of every show. So be on the lookout for that. I have a weekly column in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com, locked in the guillotine. Last week I looked at the greatness of Demetrius Johnson because he's awesome. Uh, I'll have something this week. I might dedicate an entire column to bashing Chael Sonnen because why not? <laughs> but oh so be on the lookout for that. Uh, well, it would also run concurrently with a feature that 411's doing, so there might be some work there. But be on the lookout for all of that. Thank you again, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you for, you know, letting me be on the show and run it for three months and hopefully not run it too far into the ground. Uh, Mark will be back. Mark will be back in a couple of weeks, as has been mentioned. I'm happy to keep the host chair warm for him. I'm equally happy to just be running two shows again instead of three. So (laughs) to all the loyal listeners out there, uh, I'll try to be back on the show at some point in the future if my input is requested or I feel I can offer something. Until then, you're back to your regularly scheduled programming. All right, so for Benjamin J. Cologne and for Sean Comer, I am Robert Winfrey, thanking you all again for joining us and saying be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>